Hey guys, what's up? Week 150. I hope you guys are staying safe and I uh, hope everything's as best as it can be. Uh, I want to start this off with saying I noticed my 85 video. It did like the little intro had a clip from Ghoulies. Technically Ghoulies was 84 on Internet Movie Database. So I went ahead and changed that little clip out with something from Fright Night. I felt like there wasn't enough Fright Night in that opening clip anyways. And I'm going to have to cheat a little bit and look off my sheet here. My, uh, you know, my outline. This is just so I don't forget anything. And I basically wanted to um, keep up with you guys, let you guys know where the 85 show is going, the Dive in the 85. Um, I am having a guest spot April 17th on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, where we're going to do the top 10 of 80, 1985. So um, they, they actually started watching these movies uh, around, like uh, I think, last April. So um, I went ahead, and I have a letterbox. If you guys are following the letterbox list of 1985 prep watches, and you'll notice I added like seven or eight more titles to that list that I I actually had watched in that period that would qualify and uh so you guys probably won't see those popping up in the dive into 85 because i've already covered those in the last six months and there's an additional probably five or six other titles that i've covered throughout the last couple of years on the weekly show from 1985 that i probably won't be diving back into some of the heavy hitters i might like friday night reanimator but basically, I want to give you a rundown if you're interested on what I think about those 85 movies. Uh, so basically, Death Warmed Up, I did on week 104. Uh, New Kids, I did on week 18 and 119. I did that one twice. Garfield's Halloween Special, I did on week 128. Peanut Butter Solution, I did on week 139. Weird Science was on week 115. Boys Next Door was on week 133. Hills Have Eyes Part 2, technically an 84 release, was on 123. And Ghoulies, technically an 84 release, was on um, week 89. Uh, also, um, there's some other ones that I did a while back that probably uh, I, that I might revisit. Cut and Run, week 32. Reanimator, week 13. Uh, Fright Night, week 69. Attack of the Beast Creatures, week 64. Tear in the Swamp, week 53. And Transmutations, week 83. And The Aftermath, which is a really strange movie, week 74. So uh, hopefully that will help you guys out. And, uh, you know, if you're wondering on some of those titles, I might revisit some of the latter ones, you know, like Reanimator and Fright Night and have a guest on there tackle those ones. But I most certainly will not be revisiting stuff like Transmutations, Tear in the Swamp, because I do not care for those movies. And uh, the ones that are more recent, like Peanut Butter Solution and Death Warmed Up, I won't be coming back to either because it was so fresh in my mind and the new kids and the new kids is a heavy hitter of 85 so if you're wondering why didn't you cover that one i've covered it twice already and i feel like it would be kind of a waste of both of our times for me to keep talking about the new kids so let's hop into the first review and if you notice the thumbnail i am very excited about this release this is actually one of my all-time favorite movies that wasn't on Blu-ray. And when Kino announced they were doing it, it took a couple, a year or so, even more to come out. I was super hyped. This is 1980s, by, directed by Antonio Meredigetti, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, starring the legendary, wonderful John Saxton. Also stars Tony King, Giovanni Radici, uh, cult film favorites. Those guys, you know, have their share of cult films. Uh, yeah, uh, Antonio Meredigetti had directed three other Vietnam movies besides this one, Tiger Joe. The Last Hunter and The Last Tornado and all four of the movies are pretty good. This is my favorite because it's more of a horror-oriented story, although it is really action. The plot is phenomenal. John Saxton um, is uh, he op it opens up with a, a, a scene in Vietnam where Saxton and uh, he's like a Green Beret, he's leading this uh, a bunch of soldiers into the um, jungle. 
which is clearly not the jungle, you know. Um, and he sees his uh, couple guys in this pit, and they're from his hometown. Help me get these guys out. It's uh, Giovanni Bidici and Tony King. We know that they're animals and, and cannibals because they've eaten some poor girl that fell in the pit. And uh, so he goes to reach in. He gets bit. He wakes up. He realizes he's struggling with you know psychological problems, but there's something else too. Uh, the characters Charlie Bukowski and Tommy Thompson, who are his friends, who one of which who bit him in Vietnam, are struggling in this mental institution. And it's seen that all three have had form developed some strange disease, which it, it kind of is uh, cannibalistic, but it's it's a it's a something that's psychological that had turned maybe uh, viral. It's a very strange. It doesn't really make any sense, but you have to forgive it. Meanwhile, John Saxon's wife is kind of like um, she's like a newscaster, works on news services, and. Um, there's also a doctor that's interested in his wife. So there's turmoil kind of in their relationship, although they deeply love each other. Um, let me say this about John Saxton. He is one of these actors that is always professional and always serious and gives 100% performance. I've loved him in things like Black Christmas, Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. He's top-notch. He's always great. Um, even in stuff like Hands of Steel, he turns in a great performance. Tenenbrae. I just like John Saxton. I've always been a huge fan of his, and this is probably my favorite performance of his because he is a character that is struggling. Uh, and it also interests me in this film because um, he has these Vietnam buddies and there was a relationship between them and loyalty and the Vietnam War is such a um, you know a really devastating part of American history even though Italians are telling this story it just works so essentially what happens is um, Giovanni Radici um, he's he's let out and he has a relapse and he kind of goes crazy and there's this great moment with these bikers that is very straight out of Dawn of the Dead kind of ripped off in this flea market and there's great dialogue amongst um, John Saxon and Giovanni Radici and that's that's where you're introduced to kind of the police chief who, or detective or whatever he is who's kind of like the headlining police officer one of the main characters who follows the case but essentially what happens is John Saxton is struggling with this you know psycho this virus this psychological problem where he wants to lash out you know and, and eat meat and uh, his friends are in the hospital there's a big kind of uh, a t a turn in the movie and it ends up a bunch of cannibals in the streets like I said it's viral and it ends up taking a huge showdown in the sewer system which is phenomenal the editing is really cool they'll do these nice dissolves like uh like the the, the, the flames of a flamethrower from vietnam and they're used later and you see in saxon's eyes how it works and and how it dissolves and things like that and uh like i said it, it, the action is, is really well shot because mary getty was really good with action so there's really cool moments of that kind of stuff going on and it just feels awesome uh also the score is one of my favorites it, it takes that funky approach where it's like and it just it's crazy because it doesn't fit necessarily but it, it does fit kind of like how they would do cannibal ferox where you're walking in the city uh that song by buddy something and it's kind of like that to a certain extent but um there's also a, a touching part of the score and they kind of play it they reserve it more for john saxon his wife those kind of moments and in the end it's kind of a really lovely um uh, kind of tragic love story and worthy of Shakespeare, okay? Cannibal Apocalypse is worthy of Shakespeare. I am a huge fan, as you can tell. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I love the action. I love the connection between the uh, Vietnam vets. It's actually shot, I think, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is really cool, and I think partially in Italy. 
but it's got uh, a great, you know, it's like a war action cannibal horror movie. It's definitely inspired and would probably would never be made if it weren't for Dawn of the Dead. But uh, Kino cleaned this up. It looks way better than the DVD. I'm super happy to have it finally on Blu-ray. Like I said, it was one of my last things. I was like, I know the world's a really bad spot right now, but I really want my Cannibal Apocalypse Blu-ray. It was like my point of selfishness. But um, yeah, so... I would recommend checking this out. It made the video nasties list, of course. It was one of the big three with Cannibal in the title. Cannibal Apocalypse, Cannibal Ferox, and of course Cannibal Holocaust. I love all three. This is definitely my... If it weren't for Holocaust, this would be my favorite. I adore Holocaust. I think it's a, a masterpiece. This one I, I just love. It's one of my favorites. On the disc, they ported over the old featurette that has interviews with the director and John Saxton, among other people, which is really cool. Um, there's a new uh, commentary with Tim Lucas that I started to listen to. Also really good. I didn't get to finish it, unfortunately. I thought it was tremendous what I heard. And a new interview with Tony King, which is 10 minutes long. Uh, he was a really cool guy. I could tell. It was awesome. Really enjoyed seeing that uh, interview. So, and Tony King's had a long career working in Shaft and Godfather and, uh, you know, The Last Hunter and Tiger Joe, uh, also with Mary Getty. Though both of those had David Warbeck instead. But regardless, I recommend checking this out and Merida Getty's other, um, you know, Vietnam movies. Uh, Top-notch stuff. Um, love it. Um, I think you guys should, too. I think it's underrated, you know, if you're looking for that. It's definitely a carryover from the 70s because it has that downbeat kind of stuff going on. But love the hell out of it. Also, like, the action, though, that would become kind of the 80s. So, yeah. <laughs> Barricaded in the flea market, taking pot shots at the cops outside. Okay, that's enough. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Please, please try to understand. Listen to me. While she was here, I, I had this urge to bite her. To bite her, you understand? Like Bukowski.
たら忘れられない Okay, the next one here is from Dread Central Presents, and this is Black Sight. And uh, I didn't hear much about this one. Not many negatives or positives. So I, I was kind of like, this is probably a decent movie. And that's exactly what I got. I did enjoy what I, I, I uh, saw. It's a super ambitious movie. The story is super ambitious. Uh, takes place in the future. It's kind of sci-fi. And this is a world where there are gods that wander among us. They cause a lot of problems. Uh, they're, they're, very, they're bad. So they've developed some sort of technology where they can launch them back um, into space and they cannot escape somewhere in space where they're trapped. So essentially what happens is in the very beginning, you obviously um, this family has uh, suffered immensely from this God. This girl has grown up and she works at the black site. She wants to become a field agent. And most of the old gods have been deported. So that's not really, there's not many field agents needed. And she had direct contact with the gods. So some people think that that kind of warps your mind. So she can never pass her psych uh, test. She, she's working there. The old god that, you know, caused the disruption in her family, that killed her family, um, comes through and he's going to be deported. So uh, in this facility that's kind of outdated and run down. Um, these old gods kind of seem to have cults that follow them around at the same time. So there's more threats in that. So basically our lead character has to confront this God that killed her family and fight off a cult that's coming after the God at the same time and survive the night. So it, it partially it's a siege movie, um, but really it's kind of like a, it's an action movie, action siege movie. That's what I would go with. There's lots of cool action. I like the lead. She is tough. She fights. She has a lot of fight scene. The fighting in it's pretty decent, pretty solid. Much better than something like last week's Savage Dawn, I think, just to a certain extent. Um, maybe not, but, you know, I, I think it's more effective. I remember it being decent. There's a lot, like I said, there's lots of decent fighting. It does get repetitive at points where there's going to point A to point B, and they're fighting a lot of the same kind of mass baddies that all seem similar. Um, but there is a nice little twist kind of at the end that you don't expect actually is happening, and... Uh, and there is a, you know, a history between a lot of the characters. I thought it was pretty decent. Like I said, I, uh, the lead was kind of refreshing, kind of different. I enjoyed her as some emotional moments in it. It shot pretty decent. There's nothing really that stood out to me. They kind of, uh, I didn't notice any really horrible CGI or anything like that. The effects were st solid and you know, it's a, it's big ideas, smaller budget. And I don't think there's much wrong with it. I don't adore the movie, but I do think it's uh, above average. And I do think it's worth checking out on the disc. I think there was like a, a small make of feature and a commentary on there which was nice to see i know this is kind of a quick review but um i i don't actually you know remember every detail of the film um, like I said, the, the lead character besides her is kind of one of these guys that they need a certain person to remember all these kind of old school rituals to deport the gods. And he's a character that is that kind of, hey, I'm really kind of a, I'm, I'm not very, I, I'm kind of a socially awkward kind of guy. And he's a little annoying, to be honest. It's that kind of, uh, they're going for that awkward kind of maybe lovable kind of guy. But like I said, I'm getting kind of sick of that character as well as I was the lovable loser who always screws up. Um, there's a balance in those kind of characters, and sometimes, uh, you know, the comic relief characters, they yeah, they either win you over and you love them, or they're slightly annoying. I think he's slightly annoying, but that, I don't think he's a poor actor, just poor, you know, a character that I don't really need to see the entire film with, but that is Black Sight. Welcome. I'm Professor August Kellerman, Chief Research Officer for Artemis. Do not make eye contact directly with an elder. To the untrained mind, the effects can be irreversible. They've caught him, you know. Erebus. The one that killed your parents. 
where are we going? Somewhere sunny, maybe? You Elder Gods all talk a big game. Yet here you are, hiding on our planet, living inside human hosts. Attention all officers, we have a situation in the blue zone. Give me Erebus and we'll go. You see a bad guy, seven, right? Are you joking? Okay, we have three Patreon picks coming up in a row. The first is Logan, and this is picked by my da uh, my boy Derek B. And uh, okay, you know, guys know how I feel about a lot of um, Marvel or superhero movies. I haven't watched as many as I, uh, as I should have, and I kind of gave up on the X Men series after the first three X Men movies. Not my not my bag. I remember X Two being okay, and after that, I was just like, no, I just can't be hurt anymore. After that, those were not very good, and I just don't have that much time. So I really kind of avoided a lot of the other X Men movies after that besides of course the Deadpool movies which I enjoyed immensely and so I, I watched Logan and I had heard different things um, it's more of like a modern day western I heard it's dark it's depressing it's different and I put this in and I immediately kind of fell in love with it uh, it's definitely aping to that you know western like uh, doing the right thing even in the face of danger Wolverine at this point is riddled with disease the animanium in his body is killing him uh, similar to what would happen to a person with cancer and he's getting old his healing factor is not working as well there haven't been any mutants born since 2005 it's now 2029 so mutants are kind of dying out he's taking care of a um, ailing um, old professor x who has seizures and when he has these seizures he kind of uh, puts everyone's life in danger uh caliban uh you guys remember the famous morlock mutant who used to live in the sewers and lead them he's always kind of a bad guy from what i remember he is actually helping them as well take care of professor x and he even makes some jokes about how he's nosferatu because he's all frail fun character at the same time. Um, what happens is uh, Logan is kind of approached by this um, this young woman who has this little girl and saying, I need your help. He's a limo driver. We need you to drive us here. And in this world, the X-Men comics are a thing because they're based on kind of true stories, although they've been exaggerated and, and put into the spotlight where they're heroes. Um, so it's kind of cool that they can play on that trope at the same time. And, and like, you know, that, that heroic kind of comic and, and real life versus deal, which is cool. And kind of, you know, Wolverine can look back to the comics and see how people portray how they thought of him and how he used to be this hero to look back and have all this regret and everything like that. And... So Wolverine doesn't want to help these people, of course. Uh, he wants to just take care of Professor X and has his own dreams of going on a, a boat with Professor X and just uh, the Sun Seeker and, and living a happy life away from everyone, putting no one life, life in danger anymore. So that's what his goal is. But of course, you know, he is forced to help this little girl because Professor X and some other things he learns. It turns out that the Reavers, um, also from the comics, they were kind of like, I remember like techie kind of bad guys, you know. And also it goes back to the old X-Men days where 
The main bad guys are the humans, which I like because, you know, if you ever watched the original series or comics, you know, the, the villains were really the humans in the X-Men series. So it goes back to that. And there's a bunch of Reavers that are all, um, I think Charlie Hunnam is the guy who leads him. He's really good. Richard E. Grant from Hudson Hawk and um, Gosford Park is also in this. It's like a doctor. He's really good in it. And uh, essentially, um, they basically want to get this girl. And uh, and Patrick Stewart uh, is in it, of course, Professor X. The best performance of the X-Men movies from him that I've seen. He's tremendous in it. Uh, really touching performance and Hugh Jackman and Caliban have to try to save this little girl from the Reavers. Um, I'm going to say this about Hugh Jackman. I'm a big fan of him. He was, uh, for the longest time, I was thinking, man, there's no actors I love anymore that are like newer within the last 30 years or so. There's just, they have started acting. I mean, there's the big ones like Walken and De Niro. You never stop loving them. But uh, there was, I was having trouble finding actors at that age, age range that I, I really enjoyed. And I, I saw a few Hugh Jackman movies then. He kind of just like, he won me over if it's like um, Real Steel or Chappie and then this. I'm just like, I kind of just love Hugh Jackman at this point. Like, he's one of those actors that I, he's really good. And this is the only time, like, I've seen him as the Wolverine where he gets to play this multi-layered character. And he's just, I, I love him in this movie. He's really good. And the relationship he has with the little girl and the things he finds out about them. So, uh, you know, it's that kind of story. Um, you know, redemption story to a certain extent, but also, you know, in the face of danger, you must do the right thing. And they, they play Shane, which is a Western movie, which I know has those kind of themes and elements in it, you know. So it's 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 hitting you over the head with what's going on here. But I think a lot of people will be upset. It does take some dark turns and it's violent. There's some really good moments where um, uh, Wolverine kills a lot of people, especially in this moment where everybody's being kind of halfway frozen from Professor X's mind meltdown and he's walking through and he's having trouble getting there and he's using his claws and when he gets to certain people and just boom, hits him. It, that's a really good effective scene. This is probably one of the best superhero movies I've seen or Marvel films. I would really highly recommend it. I liked it quite a bit. It's different and it's small and personal. And I tend to like those Marvel movies better. I don't like this big intergalactic. And I like that stuff too. Like I do enjoy Guardians. I love that. But like as it gets to the Avengers and stuff, it's like the end of the world kind of thing. And it's a big team effort. So that should be that. But when we get smaller with like Ant-Man or Logan, Logan's more personal than that. You get like this one little story in here and it feels personal. It doesn't feel like you know, I, I just kind of really liked it. And there's a bunch of little kids with mutant powers that are cool. And one of the characters gets killed straight up like a, a horror movie. Really would recommend this one. Liked it. Liked the score too, which is rare nowadays, but good stuff. Logan, what did you do? Charles, the world is not the same as it was. Mutants. They're gone now. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real Where is she? Beneath the stains She's like you Of time Very much like you The feelings disappear she needs our help. You are someone to come along. Someone has come along. I am still right here. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. 
Okay, the next Patreon pick is John Wick chap uh, Part 2, Chapter 2 by uh, Dustin Mills. And I had seen the first one a while ago, so it was a little foggy in my brain. And I remember liking it just fine. So I put this one in, and it continues the story with John Wick, you know, trying to get back his car from the Russians. And he ends up getting it back, and then there's a truce. But since John Wick, um, this whole movie is basically, there's this big kind of underground, you know, big Assassin's Guild and everything like that. And John Wick was partially retired. He got out, but he had to give a medallion to do so. Uh, medallion is basically this weird thing. I mean, it's basically an IOU. And if somebody comes to collect this medallion, you got to pay up or else. So this guy, after he uh, John Wick retired, he comes forth and says, "I well, since you're not really retired, I want to cash in my medallion. So he basically is going to make John Wick kill his sister so he can get a seat at the big table. Uh, yeah, the cast in this movie is pretty fun. We have, of course, Keanu Reeves returning. Uh, Lords Fishburne has a nice small role. Franco Nero, which was great to see, is kind of like leading the guild in Italy in his kind of little area. And, of course, we have Ian McShane returning as well. So, uh, you know, this movie's cool because it's so large and that it has like this whole set. It reminds me of kind of like James Bond, Kingsman kind of world. And um, this one is a big international movie. So instead of having like a lot of because I'm going to say this about the John Wick movies, the actions are the action scenes are all the same from one to two. They're all the same. And like I said, the impacts don't really there are a lot of CGI. The practical physical fighting, I think, works well. They mix in like, um, you know, martial arts and stuff like that. And, and it seems like judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and stuff like that in the fights. I like that quite a bit. but And the gunplay is involved with that too. And I think that's effective. But a CGI squib and a sweet, not squib, but CGI splatter, I can tell every time. And there's a lot of it. And some of it looks okay. And a lot of it, I'm just like, eh, it's always the same thing. He's always, I mean, I know that that's his MO, how he kills people. But all the action shot the same way. It unfolds the same way. And for as much action as this movie has, um, I'm bored with it and I don't want to be negative about it because I don't think it's a bad movie at all I think it's a good movie um, the action itself is boring but luckily this movie what it does is it switches up the locations and we see lots of cool areas and crazy set pieces especially a house of mirrors which is really effective and cool and that's really well shot so the action itself isn't always the best the way it unfolds but the where they put it at and the way they use like their locations and their set design and the props and stuff that stuff works really well if that makes any sense to anybody um the main bad guy in the movie is very aggravating of course i, I kind of hate him but his henchman I, I love her she's great her henchwoman she's tremendous she actually um uses sign language and everything and she's, she's gorgeous she's like really kind of creepy and everything like that and androgynous and weird but it's also gorgeous at the same time and she uses these the sign languages i don't i really enjoyed her character i thought she was a great bad guy besides that a lot of the other bad commons in here and there's some there's actually a cool moments with him in common. The fight scenes, those are probably, you know, the mo a little bit more unique. But like I said, the physical hand-to-hand -hand fighting, I don't care for the gunplay in these as much. Like, uh, I actually prefer the next movie's gunplay more, and there's very little of it. Because I feel like when you kill so many people in every second, I start to lose, like, any, like, effectiveness. Especially when they're all just, like, a blur of bald guys and everything like that. And I think Logan might be a little guilty of that, too. There's just a lot of guys you don't recognize getting killed. And when you take something, like, even Best of the Best 2, most of the goons you recognize throughout the entire movie. Or, um, you know, I, I just feel like there's just more character 
character and a lot of the other bad guys from the past. And I do think that side characters and character actors as bad guys in small little bit roles is kind of lost in nowadays action movies. They, they have a couple characters that are henchmen that are major, but they don't really have any side goons. You know what I mean? Like take the gang from Robocop or Darkman and all of them are super memorable. I'd rather have a set of seven or eight bad guys that take a while to kill than 300 bad guys that I don't recognize one of them. And they might be the same 10 guys. Just, I don't, that's not my thing. So like I said, it does, none of the action, I'm never worried for John Wick here, but the movie is well-made and it does do a lot of cool things and I can't hate on it for that. So I do think it's good. It's just the things that people I think do like about it is not what I like about it. So John Wick chapter two, I do think it's worth checking out. And there, like I said, it, a lot of it's really gorgeous, but also I, um, I don't want to, I like Keanu Reeves. I think he's a nice guy uh, from the stuff I've seen. And sometimes he's really works well as an actor, but I can't take him as that Kurt Russell kind of tough guy. I just can't. It's just not, I can't, it's just not, doesn't work for me, but that's just me. You know, um, I, I just don't buy it as much as a lot of other people do. So yeah, John Wick too. How good to see you again so soon, Mr. Week. I need you to do this task. I'm not that guy anymore. You're always that guy, John. I can't help you. You know the rules. If you don't do this, you know the consequences. Accounts payable, how may I help you? I'd like to open an account. Name on the account? John Wick. The contract has gone international. You have no idea what's coming. Somebody please get this man a gun. You stabbed the devil in the back. To him, this isn't vengeance. This is justice. You working? Afraid so. Whoever comes, I'll kill them. Kill them all. Of course you will. Put a little curse on the I'll try and do the same. Okay, the next Patreon pick is Debt Collector. This is by the same director who did Avengement and Accident Man, and it stars uh, Scott Atkins, of course. Yeah! And it also has Tony Todd in it, which was nice. And I can't think of the actor who plays his sidekick, or basically he's the sidekick too. So, um, But he's pretty memorable, and he's in a lot of other kind of low-rent action movies and whatnot. So Scott Atkins runs a, like a dojo or a martial arts school, and he's always struggling with money. So he decides uh, his buddy, who's Michael Pare, he's going to get a job, you know, through him helping, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a debt collector. So he's going to be, uh, you know, a bookie or whatnot, or a, hench a debt collector enforcer for a bookie. Um, he gets paired up with this kind of alcoholic, kind of tough guy, to Italian kind of guy. So it's basically the first couple of days of him on the job. And there's lots of fun moments where he uh, has to chase down people and cool fight scenes. It's very Scott Atkins, you know. Uh, I like him. He's got a sarcastic wit about him, too. And uh, he's always got kind of a tough exterior with a heart of gold. That's kind of his MO, to be honest. 
and he's good at it. So uh, basically, they have to collect a bunch of debt. Um, I actually really like his sidekick at first. I was like, this guy is such a stereotype, but he ends up becoming kind of a fun stereotype. There's a couple moments where they squeeze in a sex scene or nudity and where you're like, you know, it's kind of out of place, but nobody's going to complain when they squeeze in a sex scene pretty much or nudity or anything like that. So, but um, they do that. Uh, I Like I said, they, then it builds up to kind of a, a conspiracy or something. There's a twist where you kind of feel it coming. The one telegraph part about this movie is when their last person they're supposed to collect debt from, everybody that, that they come in contact with that talks about him, like, he's a stand-up guy. He's a great guy. And it's just like, we get it. We know where this is going. And that character is kind of uh, iffy. His, the catalyst, um, he's kind of the catalyst for what they do to a certain extent or the reason. Um, and uh, he just, he's kind of like, uh, I don't feel like he is very much established for anybody to be connected to. But you can see why the characters would do it because they are, you know, somewhat human. Um, there's some, like I said, it's a lot of fighting and a lot of the fighting is fun. Um, and I feel like it's a little bit more realistic, even though they're all, all action movies have over, over, over the top, uh, fighting and everything, but that's, that's part of the charm. I do feel like, uh, you know, Scott Atkins probably can fight a little bit better than Encounter Reeves. So that works really well. And I like the relationship between the two. Um, there's some funny moments and, and reoccurring jokes where, um, Scott Atkins always has to drive his car and his name is French and the other guy's name Sue. And I I wonder if that plays back to the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. So so I like that. And Tony Todd's good in it. He has a decent-sized role. Um, and the ending, there's some nice shootouts, um, some gory stuff going on, and the squibs are huge. So at the end of the day, I kind of like this one. It's enjoyable. I don't think it's as good as Accident Man or Avengement. I loved Avengement, really liked Action Accident Man, and I and I like this one. So um, I would check this one out. I think that uh, the ending is... is you know, I actually was at a point where I was like, no, no, I was upset that a character got killed. So that says something right there. Um, you know, that this low budget kind of action movie straight to video can get me attached to the character. So that that's, that's a positive for sure. That is debt collector. There's someone with big balls in the first fist. Well, lucky for you, I got both of them. I'll have you now. Yeah. You ever driven a car like this before? I ain't even ever seen a car like this before, mate. Do me a favor. Watch the white bolts. $17,500. We're here to see Oliver. You have the wrong house. Go after them. Shot at me. Were you hit? No. And go after him. So are we supposed to be debt collectors, yeah? We didn't collect anything. I got this skinny. Charming Irish mother. But you cannot steal my boss of Fabios. The boys will find me. Have you seen the suit? It's the cheapest suit I've ever seen. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Where I can find Connor Mulligan. That's the time to be sensible. What did you do? I asked you one thing to watch the white walls, yeah? Okay, guys, now it's time to dive in the 1985. 
Okay, guys, the first one is by Sam Raimi from 1985, and this is Crime Wave. Yeah, not necessarily a horror movie, but I think it's uh, horror-adjacent enough to cover it for the dive in at 85. Uh, yeah, this is the movie they made after Evil Dead. Um, 
there's a nice history with this movie. Uh, it's kind of like a weird kind of crime film noir comedy, over-the-top weird thing. Very Sam Raimi. Um, involved the Coen brothers, partially wrote this. It has Bruce Campbell in a, a nice-sized role. It also stars Louise Lasser from uh, Nightmare, uh, uh, what is it, Blood Rage or Nightmare at Shadow Woods or whatever the hell that weird movie is. And she plays a weirdo performance in this too, just like she did in Blood Rage. And uh, also has Paul Smith and Brian James as a couple of exterminators who are tremendous in it so um the basically this is a weird movie i don't know where to say uh Basically, it has this kind of this dorky guy who gets infatuated with this girl who's dating Bruce Campbell at the time, who's a complete asshole. And uh, essentially, what happens is they get tied up in this whole kind of scheme that uh, his uh, the main guy's boss wants to kill off his business partner because he's going to sell the company without his knowing. And this this troop, um, you know, also Scott Spiegel's part of this troop. That that's kind of the plot to the slasher movie Intruder at the same time, which they also were involved with. So that's kind of weird. So essentially, he hires these two kind of assassins, exterminators that kill all sizes. Uh, and Brian James and Paul Smith, um, you guys know them. They're two big character actors been a bunch of stuff um so uh basically to kill the boss but uh they kill um more than they uh are supposed to be and it sets this big kind of war between the exterminators and the main character there's a framing story on this that was actually shot later where um this character is basically going to be put to death blame for all that crazy things that happened in this movie and uh there's a race to save him kind of deal going on that was all shot later um uh, i originally saw this movie i wasn't the biggest fan i think i might I saw part of it on VHS and then I saw it when the Blu-ray originally came out. Then rewatching it, I, I kind of changed my tune on it. I I adored it. I thought it was a blast. I love the crazy camera angles, and that's kind of a Sam Raimi go-to. You know, it's a it's a whacked out Three Stooges movie, is what it is. It does the Three Stooges sound effects, it has Three Stooges gags, and has so many wonderful gags that just cracked me up. Lots of hilarious dialogue, and oh, geez, Brian James and Paul Smith are out of this world insane. Um, uh, Brian James keeps doing this. He's like a rat man. He's like, <laughs> he laughs like that the whole movie and, and Paul Smith's overdubbed with this really deep voice like yeah idiot don't call me a maniac and it's just I, I kind of really adore how weird this thing is and like the camera angles that they do like they're like stuff that comes all the way down off a roof and zooms up on somebody in the street and I'm like huh? and um, just the side characters are super bizarre too like the elevator guy who's actually from Three Stooges skits is really weird he's funny he reminds me of the uh the guy in Great Outdoors who was struck by lightning 666 times, uh, that guy. And uh, also in here, there's this really funny moment where this guy comes out with a baseball bat. And part of this is shot in Detroit. And these guys are, you know, Michigan boys. They're loyal to Detroit. And it feels like that. You know, a lot of the characters come out. There's this, like, landlord with a baseball bat. Like, I'm going to kick your ass. And I'm like, that's just so <laughs> like that kind of area. But this was actually shot partially in L.A., Chicago, uh, Sears Towers, and, and Detroit. So I love that. And, like, they do some things that nobody else would really do. Some dangerous stunts and just some really crazy things. And you can see it later on in Darkman and, and things. But this is this is most. He's almost. Uh, I, I'm. You know. Uh, nobody's telling him he can't do things. So it, it's getting way out of hand with the camera stuff. But I love it. Bruce Campbell cracks me up the whole time. There's this. He plays like an asshole guy, like a heel. 
and this he refers to himself as a heel, but he's smoking a cigarette and he like makes uh you know how you do the the rings, but he makes something go really crazy and weird, and I just love the hell out of that. It's that type of movie where like somebody will wink at you and be like Phew, a gun sound will happen. It's three stooges, Sam Raimi kind of over the top uh a cartoonish violence uh, stuff, but I love it. One of the best gags in the movie is when Louise Lasser is trying to escape from Paul Smith, and she's running, and he just, Paul Smith grabs the carpet from across the room and starts pulling it, and it pulls the whole room towards him to catch her. But uh, love the movie. Uh, there's an interview with Bruce Campbell on here, which is great. But there's a commentary uh, with Michael Felsher and Bruce Campbell on here. And uh, it's really good. And Bruce Campbell, you know, he, he tells you tells it what it is and says the troubled shoot and how this movie basically did not do well. And then every time he brings it up to a producer that was on the movie, they're just like, well, see you, Bruce. And they just stand there waiting for him to leave. So there's some interesting stories to be had here. And it was kind of a troubled thing. But I, I really like it. And I'm glad that it gets respect that it deserves now. Also has an interview with the lead actor on here. at this. At this at, um, I, I don't remember his name, but he's a theater actor. And it also has an interview with uh, one of the other characters in here. who is mostly a producer, not really an actor. But good release. Looks great. Sounds great. And the, there's a great moment where... Uh, Brian James is like has the girl kidnapped and like the the one guy's professing his love to her and and it's just really kind of funny in, in the way he does that whole scene and there's also a crazy story about Brian James uh, in his hotel room freaking out and destroying it so yeah um, again I maybe I'll just ra rattle off a couple Brian James movies that if you guys aren't familiar with Southern Comfort Blade Runner he plays Leon so um, I always love the guy um, he's in Striking Distance and I always thought he did a great job Fifth Element and of course Paul Smith is uh, Bluto in Popeye and he's in pieces so yeah uh, love Cry Wave great stuff Sam Raimi 1985 yeah Detroit Land of Opportunity Would you like to have some lunch some evening no, really. I haven't seen you here before. Where people are friendly. I like that in a woman. You're cute. Love is everywhere. And everyone seems to be frying, flying, and dying. Crime wave. A fiendish plan to turn citizens into shock absorbers. Fancy! And only one man is bold enough to try and stop it. Lady, you ain't seen nothing yet! Save Nancy or anyone? You're under citizen's arrest, fella! You've done some bad things, and I'm gonna deal out some swift justice! And here's one for all the folks everywhere! Well, it looks like the end of the road for you, Vic. No! Crime wave. The comedy that gets down to nuts. Mrs. Tran, you better get back in your apartment. There are a couple of maniacs running around the building. And bolts. 
Crime wave. Some night, huh? It couldn't possibly have been worse. Okay, the next one from 1985 is The Strangeness, and this is a Code Red Blu-ray. Um, I haven't watched this in years. Uh, I think I saw the DVD, uh, maybe even, a, I think it was DVD. So I put this in, and I remember it being a really kind of low-budget, darkly shot, uh, kind of like John Carpenter cave-inspired movie. And that's pretty much what it is. We have a group of seven people that are going to have to go into this mine and check if there's enough gold to reopen it to mine it. Um, the characters are pretty stereotypical, especially the, the kind of boss. He's a douchebag. He's very dry. You kind of hate him. You do hate him. There's a young kid that's going to write about the whole experience, a pretty girl, another girl who's kind of a lackluster character, and then kind of like the guy who knows the area and his buddy. So they all, and, and an old timer that kind of knows uh, the myths and everything like that. So they go into this mine, and there's these old stories, of course, and folklore about everything. And we have the writer taking notes and everything. And uh, they go in, and there's kind of a, a weird synthy kind of score to it that is very Carpenter esque. And I guess they added that in later on. But um, it's, it's a decent, okay movie. I don't think it's anything phenomenal. It's a little slow, to be honest, and it's a little dark at the same time. And you can't really not mention the monsters. Everybody else does. And the actor in the movie who wrote it, he wrote the monster, and he makes no lies about it. He was a homosexual guy who was still in the closet, and he's making jokes about it in the, in the special features, that the monster is a dick with a vagina face. And he said the old school one even had testicles coming off the back. So, yeah, um, the monster is a dick monster that was hidden in the cave, and it eats people. It kind of melts them and then sucks them in. Um, he's stop motion, and he kind of looks cool. He's kind of unique, kind of fresh. Uh, because I guess I've never seen a dick monster with a vagina face. Um, like I said, the characters are okay. There's nothing really special. The acting is it's it's, uh, it's mediocre. It's it's do it's doable. It's not the worst, but it's not particularly great either. The the guy who le like the the boss man, he straight reminds me of like some guy from the 60s or 50s, like asshole boss. He's like, well, it's a Mr. Spacely, but even a bigger prick. Um, Mr. Spa dry Mr. Spacely is what he reminds me of. I hated this guy. Um, but of course they have turmoil amongst themselves. It's kind of uneventful and they just get picked off by the monster here and there and they set up how they're going to destroy the monster. That's a plot. And I don't understand the uh, logistics of what happens after an explosion and where some characters end up. I don't know. I'm not going to argue with the movie. Um, they made some comparisons on the special features to the Boogans. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like the Boogans. Also a slightly dry underground subterranean horror movie in a cave. Is subterranean cave? Does a cave count as subterranean? I guess it would. Yeah, probably. Hmm? I don't know. Every time I think subterranean horror, I think sewer. I, it's just instinctually to think sewer. So, um, But I would recommend checking this out if you like kind of monster movies. It's not going to knock your socks off, but the, it looks as best as it can. There's a lot of day for night doesn't look you know day for night it's for 85 it probably doesn't look very good for 85 but does day for night ever look right i'd like to see the best day for night some people tell me the best day for night shots i i never i can always spot them out but yeah that's the strangeness there's a lot of features on here a commentary with the director and everything like that and you know they they seem like you know people that really wanted to make something they weren't just going out there to get money so that's also <laughs> Thank you.
They use acid to eat through hard areas in the rock. Uh, sometimes it'll pool and, and leak into the lower levels. That's right. Maybe she was on the, the other side of the cave and trying to dig her way out when, when she died. Oh, God. What's the matter with you? That weren't no acid what killed her. Morgan! I'm sorry, Jeff, but I've seen more than one man half-eaten with acid, and not one of them looked like her. Superstitious. It lives. What lives? I don't want to hear any more of that from anybody. What about Angela? I'll, I'll take care of her. Okay, here we go. This one is on VHS, and this is Honeymoon from 1985 as well. And this is, they say, a Hitchcockian thriller. And that's kind of what it is. The plot of this movie is pretty wild. We have this French uh, woman who um, is dating this French guy. Um, they're both really, and he gets picked up for drugs, and she's going to be deported because of that. But she wants to, you know, she doesn't want to leave the country because he's facing a hard time, and she's worried about his mental state and doesn't want to leave him. So she kind of signs this weird... Um, this kind of scheme and pay somebody um, to marry um, a citizen in the city or whatever in the state. Um, nobody will know about it. They've been paid off. She she pays this person off. They get married so she can stay and, you know, kind of help her boyfriend in this horrible situation and whatnot. But it turns out that this person had tracked her down after all that and really wants a relationship with her and he's really crazy and weird. And that's probably the strongest point of this movie is he gives a really weird performance where he's very polite and then moments he can snap, but it also happens over a gradual time. Um, and it's really kind of scary. So he starts to stalk her. She wants nothing to do with him, of course. She's visiting her boyfriend in prison still. But he starts to kind of infiltrate to a certain extent and somewhat get her trust, but also manipulate people around her and stuff and know everything about her. So she almost just kind of gives up to a point where she starts to, you know, under the stress. And her boyfriend's not a very good guy anyways. He's kind of a, a wimpy piece of crap. 
and and also every other man she comes in contact with not very great she goes on a date once and the guy's pretty much a rapist and so there's lots of you know really terrible men in the movie so this crazy person as bad as he is and a possible serial murderer or whatnot he might still be the most appealing which is saying something um i believe it's new york city it's gotta be new york city but you know or a big city regardless sometimes i confuse myself with that kind of stuff but uh i, I like the performance from the lead she's good and i feel sorry for her it does get frustrating this guy you just want to snap and kill him i uh, definitely would not happen nowadays <laughs> i can imagine well it wouldn't fly as well i meant more people would probably be on her side hopefully but um, it basically, um, some things unfold. He starts to threaten some people around her and everything. And I don't want to give too much away because I don't think many people have seen this one. But I do think it's well shot. It's well acted. It's well scored. It feels like the best TV movie ever made. Like a really great TV movie if that makes any sense. But I don't know if it was. Um, there is a couple moments and glimpses of really kind of nasty violence. Um, not super gory or anything like that. But the way he retells a story that happened, what happened, is really kind of scary. Uh, but he gives such a good performance and there's a moment when you kind of realize what he is um in a nightmare sequence but uh weird different performance that i don't think i've ever seen this kind of you know uh so-called crazy person or person psychologically damaged kind of portrayed in this way but i felt like it was real and he is slightly sympathetic but also dangerous you know norman bates would kind of you know do the best at that ever Sim slightly sympathetic but dangerous as hell so um yeah i do think it does have some of those kind of like qualities that you would more of a thriller but also has some horror elements good stuff i would recommend checking out honeymoon you know i've not heard many people talk about it but i enjoyed it the mash. The mash. it was a graveyard it caused on and you can now purchase these five titles at a special price of $19.95 each. And don't forget to stock up on the classic thriller, Honeymoon, also available from Lorimar Home Video. This year, in New York, 76,336 women will get married. My name is Freestand, Zachary Seymour Freestand, your loving husband. 282 will be murdered, Honeymoon. Three years ago, his wife was found dead. You're my wife. I'm afraid there's nothing we can do. As one woman discovers the kind of man... Do I scare you? ...she really married. No better than the others. Award-winning actress Natalie Bay and John Shay in the suspense thriller with the most unexpected twist to ever turn a honeymoon into a nightmare. It's over now, my love. Honeymoon. Till death do you part. Okay, another VHS here. And this is Appointment with Fear from 1985. Um, yeah, please bear with me here. I barely remember this, and that's because I tried to forget it. Uh, okay, uh... Carrie Ramson's in it from Ghoulies 2. Um, and Debbie Sue uh, Debbie Sue Voorhees is in here from Friday 13th Part 5, which is nice. Uh, who else is in here? I feel like there's some other people in the movie, too, that I'm just not registering in my head. Oh, James Avery's in here from, obviously, Family Matters. Uh, also a very good actor. Also had a really... I can't think of the horror movie he popped up in that was a while back. And I was just like, wow, James Avery played a cop in this. And he plays a cop in this one, too. A small role, but good role. Uh, we have a detective who's obsessed with catching this guy who is a violent person who I think uh, tried to attack his wife. 
Um, he, this guy is after his, um, wife and the newborn baby. He wants the newborn baby to make a sacrifice so he can be some, some kind of godlike character in a cult or whatever. You find out though, he is kind of like Patrick. He's in a hospital bed, you know, the Australian horror movie Patrick, and he's kind of pulling the strings from the hospital bed. No one believes this detective, of course. And that girl, there's a girl who's involved with him that, uh, his wife gave the baby to. So somehow this guy tracks him down and everybody. Everybody's hanging out at this big house and, and hotel, like this big house having a party and everything. One of the person is actually like a medium or like a psychic or something. So the cop's interested in her and so is the killer. Yada, yada, yada. The cop somehow focuses on there and it all comes together somehow. Kind of sloppy. I barely remember. Did Had a hard time following it because I wanted to fall asleep a lot of times. Um, it's, it's, it's boring. It's a boring movie. Um, Carrie Remsen is kind of a weird character and at the same time, I don't know who in the world would just accept a baby from a woman if she was desperate and not take it to the police or not take it to a shelter just keep it it's just like whatever and there's times in this movie where for no apparent reason whatsoever it'll just turn into a musical scene I was like what the hell is this and there was like this five minute dance number where like what are they doing they start dancing I was like why? Who? Where? And there's this weird quirky characters that do weird things that are just there just so they can carry on the plot. Like somebody has this uh, gun that uh, picks up sound. So they're pointing it at stuff later on and they like point it at uh, the girl who's talking to her boyfriend who's about to kill her and pick up information there. It's just like, what in the world am I watching? This is done by um, a producer who, who I think worked partially on the Halloween movies. And this has got to be his first time directing. And I think it might be his last time directing. And it does seem like like somebody who doesn't know how human beings function exactly because I couldn't really follow it very well, but uh, it, it's a character like the bad guy is kind of going out of the body and attacking people. It's silly. Um, I do remember a couple deaths that were kind of all right, but by the time they got to those, I had been lost interest. There's a couple scenes of nudity here and there, and there's a really weird thing where Debbie Sue Voorhees strips down nude just in her underwear. Her breasts are hanging out. And uh, if you know, you know, obviously Friday the 13th Part 5 and everybody's like, she's the hottest, you see her breast and it's, it's kind of a, you know, a huge exploitation point in that movie. And they show her like from behind, but they don't show her breast. And it's just like, I wonder if there was a thing where she was just like, I'm tired of showing my breast. I don't want to show my breast in this movie or it was cut for something. But regardless, it's weird to have her strip nude and, and then not show it in a movie. Um, that's this like low rent. I don't understand. I'm not trying to be a pervert, but it just seems like a low rent movie and they already showed a bunch of nudity. So I'm like, what, what's the point of having her do this in the first place? Even even go swimming in her underwear and not go that extra step. Don't even do it then. Just, you know, have her do something else. Have her read a book. I don't, I don't get it. Uh, it's just, it's a mess. It's a sloppy mess and I can't follow. Some people might find it funny that it just kind of all over the place and there's a weird dance number, but it's not for me. I, I couldn't recommend this one. The Egyptians had something to say about dreams. They believe that when a person sleeps, his other self goes out and does things. Appointment with fear. When love turns to hate. I need him. Where life becomes death. Let's kill his baby in order for him to be king for another year. Appointment with fear. Is it fantasy, or is it reality? He's the craziest of all the crazies. Appointment with fear. You decide.
Okay, the next one from 1985 is Howling in a Clear Water. That ridiculous song still stuck in my head. How, how can you hate the howling? You know, part two, your sister is a werewolf. Uh, that is so ridiculous. This movie is absolutely absurd. This director would go on to do Howling 3 and some other movies that are bigger. This movie actually stars Christopher Lee, of all people. The wonderful Christopher Lee and the wonderful Rep Brown. Uh, yeah, I know this movie was shot in uh, what, Prague or Czechoslovakia, whatever. Um, weird movie. But um, this opens up with a funeral um, of you know the girl from the first one, uh, Dee Wallace's character dying, and her brother is Reb Brown. Christopher Lee shows up to the funeral and says, Your sister is a werewolf. And basically tells him all these things. He's like, that's nonsense. Um, he says he's going to wait by the, you know, the cemetery and, and make sure the other werewolves don't come and take her body, yada, yada. Um, because they can't let werewolves be buried on sacred ground. Oh, Sybil Danning is the we main werewolf, too. Uh, Sturba is her name, and she has a couple henchmen, yada, yada. One of which who actually appears in Chud, too, so. And uh, the other one who appears in, what was the movie? Uh, Dracula, 1972 AD. So that's crazy. Um, which were both covered, I think, on the show. Did I cover Chud, too? I can't remember. But, uh, yeah, so uh, Christopher Lee tells him that. And it, it definitely feels like old ham movie waiting out in the cemetery. But Red Brown's not going to stand for that. So he comes back with his friend, who's a news reporter. Um, and they're going to stop Christopher Lee from doing it. She believes Christopher Lee. Red Brown, of course, doesn't. I love Reb Brown. I think he's an underrated actor. He was in Big Wednesday, Uncommon Valor, Captain America, just like the guy, uh, Robo War, of course, by Bruno Mattei. Um, so basically what happens is they believe um, Christopher Lee after werewolves attack. They decide to go with Christopher Lee to Transylvania to stop uh, the werewolves and the leader of the werewolves, Sturba. And lots of ridiculous shenanigans ensue. This movie was infamous for having a lot of the werewolves look like apes. And Christopher Lee had this weird piece of dialogue they added in to cover up that they look like apes, which is absolutely hilarious, saying they evolve or de-evolve or whatever the hell they're talking about. I don't know. It's nonsense. But uh, essentially, every movie I've seen, Transylvania, seems like it's like 100 years behind us. <laughs> Transylvania 65,000 was portrayed a little different, but still somewhat like this, uh, same year. So they go, and there's lots of, you know, um, what, what people would be like circus acts and marketplaces and whatnot. And the whole town is weird, full of weird people. The werewolves all seem to be highly sexualized and uh, have orgies. So there's these weird, highly sexual moments of like werewolves half wolfed out having these crazy orgies. Uh, Sybil Danning, plenty of nudity with her. Sybil Danning is, of course, gorgeous, and uh, her as the werewolf leader is great. I love it. Not gonna lie. Um, so there's that. They uh, the werewolves can be killed. They're killing them with silver bullets. There's a lot of them. They're getting shot. Easiest ever to kill werewolves in this movie. Um, and there's these lots of weird fake heads when people die that look hilarious and, <laughs> and their eyes move. It's pretty gory, to be honest. Lots of heads getting blown up and stuff like that. Uh, it's super cheesy and weird, though, at the same time. And they, they use this music throughout the entire movie. Um, this, like, I don't know, a new wave or whatever the hell it is. I'll play it probably, or you'll see it in the trailer. Uh, howling. It's stuck in your head forever. And they have, like, the whole, like, kind of theme playing throughout the entire movie. But Red Brown is a good action star. He's a big guy. He's good at what he does he's running around shooting werewolves and stuff and in atmospheric kind of foggy uh you know cemeteries i like that this movie is a mess though it's stupid it's silly it's ridiculous but it's always entertaining there's plenty of nudity and action and silliness and sex to keep you interested i'm not gonna lie 
I, it's an easy watch. It's enjoyable. And, you know, I've seen better movies that were harder to watch than The Howling 2. Uh, no doubt about that. Um, on the features, uh, the discs, the Screen Factory, they have a couple commentaries, but they also have an interview with Red Brown, which I loved. Red Brown seems so cool, man. I saw him at Wasteland, and I, I regret not getting his autograph. That was a that was a dummy move, but I did walk by him once, and we were like, you know, that point where like you're walking, there's not enough room. So I stepped to the side and was like this, let him go, and he was like, he seemed really nice, really friendly. Like in this interview, he seems so jovial and so friendly, and just happy to talk about the movie. And there's a moment where he gets to the point where he's talking about Christopher Lee and, uh, he's talking about Christopher Lee was, you know, not really an emotional, overly emotional guy. And he gets to a point where he, Christopher Lee starts to tell a story about, you know, them cornering some Nazis or something like that in this place after the war. And, um, and he starts to get a, a teary eyed talking about Christopher Lee getting emotional. And I was just like, man, what a, you know, a lot of sympathy in that man. It was empathy. And, uh, it just, just seems like a class act, to be honest, and just a good guy, good good dude. You could tell, and he also seems like the world's coolest gym teacher of all time, like the smartest gym teacher of all time. But uh, love that. There's also an interview with Sybil Danning on here, which was nice, and uh, a couple of the special effects artists, one of which was Steve Johnson. So of course, you know Steve Johnson worked on Ghostbusters, Fright Night. You know, probably one of the big big names in special effects. Uh, uh, there's a really stupid moment where there's a, a small person in here and they have to put these wax things in their ears because the werewolves have crazy weird powers, almost like a, um, superpowers. And she starts to howl and um, the wax things fall out of little guy's ears. And Red Brown is six, like five, and he's like 250, 300 pounds. This is a muscle guy, you know, big guy. And, and the, 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 the little guy can't move. Like, and he's like, ah, go on without me. And I'm like, why doesn't Red Brown just grab him with one hand and run? It's very easy to do. Then later on in the movie, that character comes back and now he's evil. And Red Brown just simply grabs him with one hand and like throws him out the window. I'm like, you could have saved him earlier. I mean, why don't you do that? Instead of just chucking him out the window two, 10 minutes later. But you know, that's the kind of movie. There's millions of things like that that don't really make any sense. Just check your brain at the door. Um, get ready to watch some punks get killed in the warehouse and Red Brown sends the werewolves in a cemetery and Christopher Lee kind of do his best, although he is clearly ashamed of what he's in. But uh, yeah, Howling 2. Your sister is a werewolf. Party time! Ow! It's the rocking, shocking, new way of horror. Howling 2. It's not over yet. Okay, this next one here, uh, I don't even know why I'm putting it on the channel because I feel like doing the Diamond 85, it's incomplete if I don't mention it. And I've never actually, I don't think, covered it on my channel. I'm going to point you into a commentary that me, Jeremy, and my friend Felton did for Day of the Dead. It's in my, uh, you know, the audio feed, podcast feed for Day of the Dead. So, yeah, we're going to talk about George A. Romero's 1985 classic, the third in the Dead series, um, Day of the Dead. Um, if anybody doesn't know me, they know I absolutely adore this movie since the age, tender age of 10 years old. 
my favorite movie ever made. I love it. I've watched it. I've been obsessed with it. So um, let's hop into this. Uh, now it's uh, it's gone so far into it's after Dawn of the Dead, and there's pretty much 400,000 to one by Dr. Logan's calculations. Uh, zombies outnumber the humans. There is a group of scientists and soldiers in an underground bunker trying to survive. It seems pretty hopeless, and they are at each other's throats arguing about everything. So we have Sarah as our main character, um, a strong female lead, which is what would happen in Romero's films as they progress, starting with Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, who is weak, Dawn of the Dead with Fran, who is a pretty average human being, I would say, and, and, and pretty strong. And then we have Sarah from Day of the Dead, who is basically Ripley, and uh, more realistic than Ripley, I think, and, and great. So Is she before Ripley? No. No. Uh, 78 was Alien, but she is before Aliens. Okay. which I think um, they beefed Ripley up. Uh, yeah, I love the cast. There are a lot of Pittsburgh kind of people in here. Um, there's some familiar people like uh, Lori Cardell was actually daughter. The star Sarah was a daughter of Chili Bill Cardell, who is a newscaster uh, weatherman, I think, uh, from Pittsburgh area. And he was in the first Night of the Living Dead as one of the newscasters uh, interviewing everything. So that's really cool that they carry that on. It also has Greg Nicotero in a small role, you know, for special effects and stuff like that. Tasso is in here from Dawn of the Dead, also a special effects guy. Um, Richard Liberty from The Crazies uh, appears. That's another Romero movie. We have Terry Alexander from The Horse Show. Uh, the guy who plays Bill McDermott, I'm not too familiar with him. He was a theater actor. He plays the Irish drunkman. And uh, we also have people like John Applis from Martin and a bunch of other Romero projects. Kind of a famous, you know, indie kind of actor from Pittsburgh especially. And then we have uh, some other, a couple of my favorites personally, uh, Rickles and Steele. Steele was actually played by Gary Claw. Uh, I think it's Claw or Crawl. Uh, it's K-L-A-R. I've never knew how to say it, but um, he was a football player, power lifter, and, you know, actor later on. He plays the ultimate goon. Um, Rickles, unfortunately, died in a car accident. I think his name was Ralph Mario or Mario or something like that. Who plays John? Uh, John, uh, Terry Alexander, the helicopter pilot. Yeah. Yeah, he's the Jamaican guy. Who is... Was he in anything else? Horror show and some other stuff. A lot of these guys, I think, are theater actors. Okay. But, uh, Romero tended to use, like, not always the biggest actors, which um, early in his career, especially some of them got more notoriety later on. But I kind of like that in a certain way, especially when you're watching something end of the world it, it kind of, you know, if you see, like, uh, you know, a big actor in there, it could take some people out if um, they don't have that everyday or, you know, uh, you know familiarity. It might mess you up. But I love, I adore how this movie opens. Uh, opens in a, a big white room with a wide shot. Uh, Sarah's head down and everything and she goes up to the calendar on the wall and whew, these hands reach in there and that becomes like a uh, reoccurring thing is the nightmares in this movie yeah her, her nightmares are some of the more fascinating scenes in the film yeah they're um, pretty cool there's you know the, the, the hand scene and then when um, Miguel, Miguel I forgot Miguel when Salazar he, when he yeah. wakes up and because she had seen that scene yeah. earlier at the operating table um Sarah's just a fantastic character all around. Sarah's my favorite uh, female uh, lead of all time in any movie. She's just really tough, and she's got some great lines. Like, she, yeah, she's yeah. got some great lines. Um, just very proactive and, and a very logical character. Um, and She's the character in the middle when we have like Richard Liberty, who's completely doing all these experiments off mm -hmm. to one side in Rhodes. I forgot Joe Pilato. I can't believe I didn't mention Joe Pilato. Yes. He's one of the best over-the-top great performances of all time is in Captain Rhodes, and he's on this side. It's just some tremendous stuff. So, I mean, like she's in the middle torn. Right, and you know, I, like the first couple of times I've seen it, you know, I'm like, oh, Rhodes isn't the bad guy. Rhodes is, is the villain. He's wrong, and... You know, he's acting way out of line. And every time I watch it, I'm like, I, I probably 
side with Rhodes. I would have to. Uh, no. I mean, it's not what you believe. It's how. It's not what you do. It's how you do it a lot right. of times. And the way Rhodes handles himself and carries about his, you know, thing is completely insane. Mm -hmm. Um, Bub also is in here, and this is carries on. Uh, he's played by Howard Sherman, who's in The Stand and Lethal Weapon 2, and had a small stint on. He had a role in Seinfeld in one episode. But this is also another thing that Romero does as he carries on the zombie progression. With Night of the Living Dead, you have him using bricks. and Dawn of the Dead, the one grabs the gun. They start to think. They have the whole pure motorized instinct going on where they're going back to the mall. This was an important place in their lives. And then Day of the Dead, some of them are even carrying it further. And we have Bub, who is more docile, and he's starting to learn, and Richard Liberty's taking him as a star pupil, as they call him in the film. So I, that's a really uh, great, you know, how, how Romero carries on his trilogy. He didn't make the same movie every time. Each movie reflects its time it's made in, but carries on the story, which is also very unique and cool in a trilogy. And unlike any other trilogy I can think of, to be honest. Um, these first three films are all phenomenal, but um, the performances in this are, are some of my favorites. Like, I would say, like, the best, some of the best two-dimensional characters ever. I don't know if oh, you yeah. consider two or three. Some of them three, but a lot of them are two. I th I'd say they're all two. I don't know if there's a three-dimensional character, per se. But um, um, Romero takes that time to give small characters these really wonderful moments. Um, even in characters like Miller, um, uh, there's going to be spoilers, like I said, like just like Return of the Dead last week I talked so much about. But even characters like Miller, when Miller's bit, and he's like, I don't want to be one of them, and he's dying, and Steel comes down, and you can see, like, Steel is this big buffoon, you know, enforcer the whole movie. And you think, well, he's really kind of obnoxious, but at that point, you can see he looks over, and he has these, like, um, he always has a glint in his eyes, like sadism. But, and like, and just crazy kind of off the wall kind of, uh, you know, manic kind of thing in his eyes. And when he sees him, he has tears in his eyes. And it's like he gets this sensitive moment where he has to kill him. And that kind of sets him off the edge. Because before that, he is kind of an asshole, but he's a great soldier. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to be completely inhuman. But at that point, it sets him off the edge when he has to kill some of his own people and and that's like another little touch and and even his death Steele's death is another great touch that Romero let um, him improvise with the um you know the whole Catholic cross um, mm -hmm. and Romero let him do that and that really helps his character when you're young and you watch stuff like that you take these characters that should be one dimensional and you make them two dimensional and you make them even though they're bad you have some sympathy towards them and every character in here with the exception of maybe Rhodes <laughs> you have sympathy for to a certain extent I I, I have to defend Ro Rhodes because here's the thing. Like one, John has the right idea for the whole movie. John and McDermott are, are the logical thinking people. Logan has completely lost his mind. He is doing absolutely nothing. Well, he's science, and science does not care about humanity when it wants to get it done. They'll break eggs. They'll you know cross those social boundaries. It's like Doctor Frankenstein. Hence, they call him Doctor Frankenstein right. in the movie. So you know, I, I you can understand to a certain point that we are past um, and Dawn of the Dead. This isn't the Republicans and the Democrats. Right, right. Uh, we are you know we're past <coughs> caring about somebody's moral compass here. So right, but we gotta. Here's the thing, he, he at this point, he is wasting time. He sees the situation as so hopeless that his only solution is to train them, which is going to take weeks and months, and, and that's for it. one time. They, they don't have that. Sarah, on the other hand, if we go by what Logan is saying, is she's done. She she doesn't know what to do. She wants to reverse the process. Re which, eradicate it. Which you can't do. It, it's... You know, she, she, she's chasing a, a dead end. 
And so Rose is like, what are we doing? We're running out of supplies. We're running out of time. And like, and my soldiers that I'm now responsible for because I became into command are dying and you guys are doing absolutely well, nothing. He loves it because it's an ego trip for it, him it, too. It is an ego and trip. He is a bad person. But I think that I, I understand entirely where he is coming well, from. Well, Romero's original script would suggest that you're wrong. They do have more resources in the original script, but mm-hmm. the original script, they actually have a group of zombies that they have partially trained. So, and, and Romero's initial thing is that these zombies constantly mm-hmm. are, you know, evolving and, and gathering their more intelligence and, and whatnot. Um, kind of like S- Stephen King did in the book Cell, where, like, they, they originally, whenever an answer's phone, their brain is wiped, and they start to learn more, and they connect, and there's some weird thing going on there. But this is more, you know, they start to, you know, learn more, and then we go in the land of the dead, and they're just... Uh, it's an all-out crazy thing. Um, I've only seen Land of the Dead once. It's actually pretty good, but unfortunately, I think that the three work the best because I, although Land takes place after Day, it never really felt like there was anything in Day. Like I feel like they were the last ones. Yeah, where, where Land carries off, it's like I just I can't. I have a hard time buying that there were survivors after after Day of the Dead, but that's right. okay. I'm glad I got Land of the Dead because it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the special effects, you can't not mention Tom Savini's brilliance. This is probably my favorite effects that he's done. The blood looks fantastic. There's gut ripping. There's all these medical experiments and, and craziness. Um, mm-hmm. Just tremendous special effects, innovation, and just really cool moments. Great squibs, too. Um, his squib shots are totally underrated, the way that he has action and his effects and stuff like that. Like, a lot of people don't, you know, have that many good squib shots. Squib shots are totally under you. They don't even use them anymore. So, I, I mean, I just watched John Wick 2 this week, and that's a huge uh, flaw to movie for me because there's so much violence. But it's just so violence and such computer-generated violence. It, it does, All of it doesn't work for him. It just distances you from it, and you don't feel it for me. But uh, those squib shots, you really feel in this one. Um, and this is one of the rare movies that... Um, I know that you probably see some of the seams on the zombies and things like that, but when it went from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray, every time it goes up, it looks better to me. The effects look better because when uh, my VHS originally, I didn't even see the bullet shots on roads. Right. Like, you couldn't see them on the stomach. I was like, oh, they just went cheap. And with uh, Miller, when he shot, you couldn't even see the bullet in the back of his head. So, like, I just thought they were being shoddy, but in actuality, it was just poor, you know, video format. Mm-hmm. I, I think... I don't know, this, this movie almost feels like an Italian movie to me, and I don't know why. Well, it's because um, George Romero made Dawn of the Dead, and that was partially Italian, and then it inspired all the Italian people to make right. this movie. So, like, mm, a lot of the movies you've seen that are Italian are basically Romero-inspired. And when, you know, I've seen a lot of, like, the Italian, like, army in the jungle with the zombie, and so here I am in the Everglade, the army with the zombie, and I, I, I don't know, the, the music is fantastic in this John um, Harrison's score is probably um, my favorite score of the Dead films. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of people are like, Don's way better. It's way better. It's more consistent. But I'm just like, I kind of like the inconsistency that it mixes the Calypso, like that kind of like, you know, that mm-hmm. um, Jamaican kind of feel to it with John. And then it also has like the horror things and the notes of really, um, I'm sorry I'm cutting you off. I'll let you no, talk no you're, this, you're but, fine. Yeah. Um, the, I've always liked Night. And I've always been, like, meh on Dawn. I, I, Dawn, just for whatever reason, never did it for me. But Day, like, I liked it the first time I've seen it, but every time I've watched it, I've liked it so much more than Night. And I think it takes everything that Night does and just amplifies it. Yeah. There, there's, there's, like, the in-arguing, the, the this side and my side, the, you know, should we stay or should we go? Um, I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's 
I think night is still technically scarier because I can, because night is just like normal people. It's also the beginning, and it's the beginning, and you, you don't, don't know, know what's, what's going, going on. on. And then here we are, and it's like this is all that's left, and I I don't know. Day is so good. Day's better than night, I I think, but I I appreciate. It was night. George's favorite dead film, at least not the first three. Uh, th there's a lot of quotes in this movie that stuck with me, and it's not always the big quotes, you know, but, um, one of my favorite all-time quotes that always, like, gave me chills, like, uh, later in life is with the music cue, because a lot of quotes and stuff like that, they are intertwined with, like, young age, and they, they, they hit when the music cues and sound cues hit, so that's, like, your memory, and it triggers it, so at the end, when they're climbing up the ladder, and, um, John gets grabbed by a zombie, and it's kind of looking, like, scary, and then, um, the zombie's head explodes and he, uh, McDermott screams down, come along, Johnny, I'm counting on you to fly us to the promised land. That music cue and the way he says that, it's just like, and then I know it's a little cheesy and maybe ham-fisted when he looks at the gun that he has that he stole from Rhodes and it's out of bullets, so he just throws it, but it's also like, you know, we're done with this because John wants to move on and start civilization again and just forget about the past and all the horrors of the past, which, you know, is probably the best idea at this point. I think, I think my favorite quote, and, you know, I can't get it exact, you know, because it is a very long quote, but I like when John and Sarah are talking, and Plenty he, he points because like the place we're in is like a mining slash storage facility time capsule thing. Yeah. He's like, we have all this research down here, and like essentially he says, like, let's go start again, raise a baby, tell them never to come back here and dig this stuff. Yeah, dig this stuff back up. It's one fourteen mile long tombstone. Right. Tombstone. And like, and that whole scene when when they go to the trailer. With an um, epitaph on it, which ain't nobody gonna bother yeah. to read. Yeah. I mean, that whole scene's just like that's that's probably my favorite scene. In the whole movie is just them talking and hanging out and wow. taking that moment of like I don't know, like shelter from the chaos that is around them. Romero's very good at showing strands of humanity in his movies, um, especially the crazies. I think that has it too. The end of that crazies is so cruel, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it just it makes me really kind of emotional. <laughs> But, um, like, uh, Day of the Dead has a lot of moments of humanity. They're really good, too. Like, that moment and everything. And, like, um, like I said, Steel. Like, actually, like, as much as Steel and Rickles are ridiculous, there is a friendship there. And uh, I always have been kind of fascinated by friendship amongst bad people. Or, like this week, Cannibal Apocalypse, too. Like, people that are suffering, like, and, and that kind of loyalty amongst each other. Or even Reservoir Dogs with Nice Guy Eddie and... Um, uh, Mr. Blonde, like there's a, a genuine love and friendship in that amongst the, the bad people or people that are doing horrible things. And I, I, I've always kind of like uh, liked that quite a bit. Uh, at the end, like I said, Steel, Steel is, is I, I've always been fascinated by these like tough guys, but buffoons at the same time, but also have some sort of, you know, humanistic quality in them, with the exception of Otis from Henry, but he's one of my all-time, he's like a, a scary buffoon. He's, he's funny, but he's absolutely horrifying, and, and Steel can be the same way, and Warren Oates from The Wild Bunch. Like, I, I'm fascinated by these kind of characters that are kind of, in all intents and purposes, buffoons, but they're also, you know, highly dangerous in a certain way at the same time. And childlike. Yeah. Yeah. I, actually, the, the whole, like, all the soldiers are just fantastic characters. They're just, <laughs> it's a good core cast of just goons, you know? I mean, like, you have, like, Johnson, Miller, and Torres really don't want to do anything like that. They just carry on with their, their orders. Like, even, I don't mm. even think Miller would follow through with any of that, or Johnson. No. Uh, but 
when after they go, it's um, you know, and like you know, have John and Miller have, or McDermott and Miller even have that one moment. It's funny thing, a bunch of real estate at closeout price, another waste of time. You got that right. You see, mm-hmm. so they have a back and forth. It's really just Rhodes and Steele and Rickles, kind of, you know, who are the real animals. They're they're the real animals. I mean, the other three are are fodder for sure. Um, but but there are scenes where I think they're acting in the background is. You know, it it just adds to it. You know, like yeah, there's yeah. the standoff scene. There's a you know, I'm not getting paid. Oh, that's brilliant <laughs> with Rickles. I mean, I'm working in a loading bin. Yeah. I'm being paid enough to work in a loading bin. I ain't being paid at all. Right. And, and I was listening to one of the commentaries, and Roger Avery, um, the guy who wrote you know, Pulp Fiction and stuff like that, was hating on Rickles' performance, and he's like, "That's over the top." It's like, I don't think you've ever been around. Uh, what you haven't been in high school in a long time, and right. essentially these guys are high school idiots right now. And I don't think it's as over the top as people think. But that 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 commentary was shot years back nowadays i think the ridiculousness romero had his hand on that pulse he usually had his hand you know his, his fingers on the pulse of what people were like in humanity way before and and he's always ahead of the curve on that stuff and, and in 20 years i hope i look back at like diary of the dead i'm like man i mean i'm seeing some of that like oh he was ahead of it even though that movie has flaws and everything but i know day was hated at first and it came around and became a lot of people's favorites and i i hope his later films do too i know lance underrated and i thought so but you know i hope it, i have a more appreciation for dire and survival as my life goes on. Uh, another thing, too, you got to mention Miguel Salazar and Sarah's relationship um, because uh, Miguel Salazar is kind of the weak link, so they all pick on him, all the soldiers, and he, he's mentally unstable, which is a good statement on mental health, and the way he dies and what he does is, is kind of like, you know, a little uh, foreshadowing what people do now a lot, but we've always had that problem. Um, and then at the same time, uh, he's very feminine. Like, he's very feminine. He's also a minority, which Romero was partially um, Hispanic and I think Lithuanian. Or was he Mexican and Lithuanian? I know Hispanic. I'm not sure the termination. You know what I mean? If he's from Mexico. He'd be Hispanic, right? Latino or Mexican. Okay, sorry. Yeah, but um, so so he always has that kind of racial thing in his movies, like Dawn of the Dead in the beginning and everything like that, and even Night. You know, even though they say it's subconscious, but still. Uh, so uh, Miguel is like the you know he's a weak link. He's they call him Yellow because he's a coward, and then he's he you know he's Mexican, and then he is also really feminine. Which I I always kind of came to the point where I think that Sarah and Miguel's relationship is a non-sexual. I think it's she is almost like a motherly figure to him. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what it comes across at yeah i it's hard for me to look at them in a sexual relationship and i think it's because i have a hard time sexualizing sarah and um it's like it's like miguel's the odd man out i mean he's he's a gay guy in some extent and sarah's the only girl so it's like well we have this common did not like you never see them Romero never explicitly says he's gay but I, I mean I get to the point where at least he, he's feminine you know he's, yeah. feminine enough where the guys will like and that's perfect casting and he does a great mm-hmm. job because he is that kind of odd man out like you know just with the soldiers and everything like right. that it's, uh, it, it's weird because it, it, it is the mid 80s it is in a very patriarchal patriarchal setting and it's like you're not gonna make. You're not gonna say that he's a gay character. Maybe he's not supposed to be a gay character. But Romero definitely did casting like that, where he would. Because right. I mean, he always cast the the woman and the African American for a long time mm-hmm. in the, the Dead films. So he definitely would do something like that to China, you know, just right. to get his point across. That and Romero was very progressive in that kind of way and casting and everything. He, mm-hmm. you know, so ahead of the curve on that as well. And 
And so I definitely think that is going on to a certain extent. And it's not the first time he had a homosexual character in his movie. In Knight Riders in the early 80s, there was one. Mm-hmm. And it was open, you know what I mean? Kind yeah. of deal. So And all the bikers in Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> and <laughs> I kind of doubt that. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, but if you look at Sarah, like, if you look at her relationships with some of the characters, is, is that you never see her, like, like kiss Miguel. I mean, she <laughs> hugs him, but she hugs John when she's yeah. shaken. She's. I think she's closer to. Um, is it Fisher? No, yeah. Uh, well, Fisher's John Applis. He's kind of. Yeah. A, he, his role is very good because he's very natural and very normal in the situation, yeah. and, and he's not um, uh, sensationalized like a lot of other characters. And in reality, most people would probably be like a John Applis or even like a Torres that this, or a Miller or something. They don't really want to get involved to the point. I, you know, super. You know, right? And and when she's speaking with Fisher, like you know, they are coworkers. You know, but. She's more. She's not putting on any, any false air. I think that where she is with any other character in the scene, except for maybe McDermott, although she's kind of. There's, there's a lot of good relationships in this movie. We there have Steel and Rickles um, mm-hmm. as like friends and goons, and we have Steel and Rose as like enforcer and boss, and we have, of course, um, Logan and Bub. How can you not have Logan and Buzz relationship? It's just so great and like oh, yeah. the caring that moment when uh, they go into the room and he says. Um, Let's see what Bub would do in this situation. He pulls the gun out, and mm-hmm. it has that that military music cue, um, and he steps right in front of him, not to let him shoot him. I love that right. part. It's so great. Like I said, the score is kind of all over the place, and that's another complaint I've heard. Like, and we have that like kind of like that kind of almost mm-hmm. like Everglades, Florida thing. But then we have like scary stuff, and then we have you know synthesizer. But then we also have that military kind of like a RoboCop thing, and right. I think it all mixes. I think it it's it's a mixed score. That fits the settings of the movie and, and the tone. I think it's perfect. I mean, um, in reality, George Romero, I think his least favorite score was the Dawn of the Dead score. I'm not sure he was a big fan of the Goblin stuff, to be mm. honest. Like, I, I mean, it's hearing like commentaries and stuff. He wanted to use he used more library music in the extended cut and everything right. like that. So, well, I, I think the best relationship is Logan and Rose. Oh, between them? Between them. I mean, their, their first scene together, like, you know, is food ready or is... <laughs> is there food? Yeah. Uh, Rhodes quotes, all day you can go, I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein. Uh, they, they Give just... me nothing but a mouthful of Greek salad. And, right. and um, you know, that's such a weird phrase because, you know, people would say, that's Greek to me. That's strange to me. Mm-hmm. But he says, you've given us nothing but a mouthful of Greek salad. Like, that's, you know, it's that just must strange. be like a Philadelphia expression or something. Well, no, Greek, yeah. Greek means strange. Yeah, so basically, yeah. strange. You know, I, we don't understand the scientific mumbo jumbo. You got to say it in terms that we understand, or this is just nonsense to us. Right. But the way they corral the zombies is very western-like, and Romero loved his western, so that that's really crazy too. And it seems so dangerous to corral. Get the other one out of there. Oh yeah. The zombies are also getting more aggressive from night to dawn to day, mm-hmm. and they're getting more rot, and and they look better, and everything like that. Um. My favorite line, I actually ripped the line off for Halloween Spookies, is when uh, the elevator comes down and you hear, holy shit, and then Steel says, holy fucking shit, and all the zombies <laughs> are coming down. I love that. I love the bickering between Steel and Rickles when the, the mm-hmm. basically chaos ensues, and they're right. all like, I love people freaking out and just being frustrated, and he says, you can fix it when the guts are torn out of mm-hmm. uh, the elevator lift. Fix what, Rickles? He tore them. <laughs> He's, they're just losing their minds. I love it. It's perfect. Um... I love everybody in this movie. From, right. I love the special effects, uh, the acting, um, the music, the setting. Um, jumping back between Pittsburgh and Florida is what they were doing there too, you mm-hmm. know, because they shot the mind in, in uh, Pitts, uh, 
where was it Pittsburgh? But it was definitely in Pennsylvania area. So I just love it. Um, I think that the sets are great. I think everything about it's great. I, I don't know if I, there's anything else I can say about it, to be honest. But I love the damn movie. It's one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, uh, that's uh, social commentary on the military complex, mental illness, all sorts of things like that. We, like I said, we have a relationship between Miguel Zalazar and Sarah, relationship between so many cool relationships. Uh, John and McDermott, yeah. Sarah and John, you know. Uh, but I love uh, the Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. He always <laughs> says that, McDermott. He's got his catchphrase, which is fun. Does he say it a few times? In... He says it like five times. Wasn't I counting it? Like... Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It goes about like five times. <laughs> Um, I don't know. There's a lot of sentimentality, I think, in this, too. I think that this is a really genuine movie. I, like, yeah. I, you know, I, I've never read the original script. I don't know if I would like the original script. But what this movie is, is, is it's, uh, what would we say, lightning in a bottle? No, or, I, I no? think Night is lightning in a bottle. I think Romero knew exactly what sure. he was doing here. And uh, Dawn the same way. Dawn was uh, really at a moment in filmmaking and stuff. And Romero's one of the big independents. So. Right. But another thing I want to mention is in the original uh, Day of the Dead script, the virus, it, it, not virus, whatever it is, right. stops. Because in the beginning, Miguel Salazar is shot in that script. And he's not shot in the head. In the, in the the whole original script is big, <coughs> complex, and it's completely different. But he's shot, and um, what happens is um, later on at the end, they run through the. It's been days, run through the Everglades, and his body has not come back as a zombie. So they're suggesting that the, the curse has been lifted. And other people have made comments about Richard Liberty's character being shot but not shot in the head, and he doesn't come back. And they're like, well, why didn't they show him come back so him and Bub could be together, yada, yada, yada. And there is a subtle chance that George Romero was thinking that this thing has finally been lifted. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I doubt it. But there's always that chance because in the original script, it was over. And it would have been the big epic like Dawn of the Dead was on a bigger scale and the Day of the Dead scale. And I wish we would have got to see that. But I also am very grateful that I got Day of the Dead as it is. You know, and it's interesting because I just never realized it. Like, I think that this is of the three, and maybe of the whole franchise in general, this is the only one where a core cast member doesn't come back as a zombie. You know? Like... Yeah, maybe he did. He wanted to break the mold because his movies get more hopeful as it right. goes on. At night, it's a very, very nihilistic ending. Mm -hmm. And then Dawn, it's kind of up in the air. It's just probably not very good. going to turn out very well for them. And then Day, we have this happy ending. Right. Know? And I don't know. Just, you know I, I don't remember what happens in Land and Diary. and Land kind of ends in the way where, you know, maybe we can coincide. Maybe. Somewhere. Maybe. I don't know. And survival is it's like it, like she eats the horse, right? I remember that. I don't remember that. <laughs> diary movie. is the restart a day. I don't remember survival. what what diary was. I just remember just being a bunch of like cameras in a trailer or something. It's, it's a found footage kind of deal or that kind of style. Those I three know. I really do need to rewatch. Lance, I mean, why not? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, those movies will never hold the weight, even if I do end up loving them. I don't think they'll ever hold the weight as the first three for me in general. No. But, uh, I, I don't I could probably go on and talk about this whole movie but I will point you in the direction of the commentary that was recorded and I'll probably leave a link below if you want to hear that um, we also did a Dawn of the Dead commentary and uh, we'll eventually do a night as well but uh, like I said I'm a big fan there's moments of this movie I adore um, again I want to mention something else with Miguel I love that he has his dog tags and his like you know religious symbols and medals around his neck and they're all tied together it's just mm -hmm. a nice little you know image and when he dies you know doesn't he grab or you see the dog tags. I think he grabs them 
I think he squeezes him. Yeah, I think he does grab when he's laying yeah. on the belt. So he has that religious the... thing about yeah. him, and that you know, it's just like the military mix with the religion. He just squeezes it. It's just lots of nice moments like that. Um, just mm. and, and brilliant, brilliant, funny moments. Um, and, and the way that the characters talk again, like I'm saying this again, and Return of the Dead and Day of the Dead are completely different movies, but the humor for those both those movies works. And and it's not like Day of the Dead's a laugh riot or anything like that. No. It's intense, but it's just some of the stuff they say is like so ridiculous, but also real. Like, right and I, when you're outside the situation you can laugh if you were in it you wouldn't i don't think you could no, no. you'd be losing your mind you'd be losing your mind uh mm -hmm. and uh another good line last good line let him go god damn it or i'll cut you in half i was like oh god what, what favorite character oh logan what you must, no. You must listen to me, Captain. You must listen to me. <laughs> See, I, I like every character. It's a toss between John, Logan, Sarah, and Rhodes. And so it's like the main cast. My favorite character is the main cast. Steel and Sarah. Okay. And Rickles. <laughs> I love them all, though. Howard Sherman's performance is also excellent. And it, it's very much like uh, we said... He, he, people would say like Karloff is mm. Frankenstein, but I, I see a lot of the Christopher Lee Frankenstein in it too, from uh, the first Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah, I could see that. So I mean, he's tremendous, and his childlike movements—he's really good. Uh, Logan, is it Richard? Liberty. Richard Liberty. I'd only ever seen him in this, this and the crazies. Uh, the crazies, and he's in some other stuff, but he was a theater actor. He's really good. He's very good. But Logan, I, I would want to play Logan, and or McDermott. Uh. <laughs> be drunk the whole time oh yeah also yeah. there's a shout out to stephen king in there with the salem's lot mm -hmm. just go on all day about this movie. yeah we we could I, maybe we should wrap it up We're who's your favorite you said steel and sarah and rickles and rickles i like Rhodes. them all though it's hard to pick yeah. i love Rhodes too mm -hmm. we got the meet i got the meet Rhodes and steel and i uh, my regret is my favorite movie but they were all there and i just was like man i, I should have got sarah and all them but it would have been very expensive and i regret not doing it now but um yeah love the movie my favorite Hopefully this review was good enough for you guys. And love the music. Yeah. Ciao. First, he created the most frightening film ever made. Then, he took his unique vision of terror one step further. Now, George A. Romero takes us out of the night, beyond the dawn, and into the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Day of the Dead. There have to be survivors in Washington. Oh, my. They have more sophisticated shelters than this one. There have to be people in those shelters who know about us, who know where we are. With no radio contact, they'll come looking for us. I said shut up! They can be tricked into being good little girls and boys. Same way we were tricked into it. Promise of some reward to come. What's wrong with you people? They're dead! They're fucking dead, and you want to teach them tricks? They have to be rewarded, Captain. Why else will they do what we want them to do? I don't want them to do anything but drop Run, you fucking lunatics! Ah! 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 Ah!
Romero's Day of the Dead, the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. Hammer time! For all who are willing to pay the price, we invite you to go through the mirror of life! Hey guys, what's up? Um, we're here to do Hammer Time. There we go. And this is Fear in the Night, I believe from 1972. Directed by legendary Hammer writer Jimmy Sangster. And I know he's dived into directing before. I can't remember which ones he's directed, but he pretty much writes tons of the movies. And he wrote a lot of the kind of uh, psychological thrillers. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Fear in the Night opens up wonderfully. It has one of the best openings I've seen, like the tracking shot, the establishing shot of where we're at, like an abandoned school. I was like, okay, this is very European horror. Um, this is very actually well shot, different location, looks beautiful. One location, kind of isolated deal. You're seeing the cast, Peter Cushing, Joan Collins, um, geez, uh, Ralph Bates, and the uh, Judy Geeson. So I'm like, oh, I know who all these people are. I'm familiar with them, and they're all excellent actors, and a couple of them are Hammer Maystays. So I'm like, this should be pretty damn good. Uh, we start to progress, and like the first 15 minutes in, I'm, I'm totally into this, but for some reason, there's a spot where it, it kind of lost me, and it turned into... The stuff that we were watching from the 60s, which I feel was more effective, it, it, it turned into a typical Gaslight Hammer story with ridiculous twists. Sometimes they're okay, but it just was so typical it kind of lost me. And there was not enough Cushing or Collins to, suffice, to keep me satisfied. Yeah, Cushing shows up kind of late in, in, in the runtime. Well, he shows up the first time rather early, but then he doesn't show up again forever. I feel like... It because by the time they get to... I'm trying to think of the, the course of events. Well, she's going through the school walking by herself, and that's fairly early and on. That's the first time that we get to see him. Yeah. But before that, I mean, there's the attack in her apartment. Yeah. Um, well, you want to... Should we break down the plot here? Should, yeah, I guess we could break down the plot. Um, girl goes crazy after marrying a guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, a, a teacher is hired to teach at this kind of uh, isolated, exclusive school. He goes out there and he brings his wife. And he's actually been teaching there a while, but he's going to bring his wife in there because he's going to permanently move into the spot to help Peter Cushing and his wife teach this school. When they get there, there's no one really there. It's really awkward and weird. And Joan Collins and Peter Cushing, who are a married couple, are really kind of really strange with each other. They're never seen in any of the same shots. They're never around. Mm -hmm. And they kind of pop up randomly and you start to learn that something happened at the school also judy geeson was attacked previously by a man with one arm which kind of reminded me of the fugitive which would come out later so uh that's kind of the plot in the setup so you don't know if judy geeson's crazy because not everyone believes her so it's a typical i'm crazy or is she crazy or and then there's going to be a bunch of twists and turns and everything like that throughout the movie y yeah i mean it, it's very like standard i think it's substandard honestly like you know, they, they right away the first encounter with like like the strangler or whatever, 
you find out that he has one, one arm. He, he has a prosthetic yeah. arm. And Cushing's first scene, he has one arm. And so it's like, well, it's got to be Cushing. And there's no way she can imagine the one arm <coughs> unless you completely do something ridiculous. And it kind of is semi-ridiculous of a twist at the end. Yeah. yeah. But not, impo- not completely impossible. It's not impossible, but like the way it's that... It's implausible. Yeah, the way that the, the twist is, it's like it, it's it's going for one direction and it, everything's built on like toothpicks it's it's really just a house of cards it, like tenenbrae remember that when the detective the dumb detective i think it's J- J- Gemma, says when the in, when you eliminate the impossible the improbable becomes possible becomes uh likely or something he says that weird mm-hmm. line like that and i guess that's like every mystery movie ever but um you know unlike tenenbrae this isn't nearly as clever and doesn't play on the tropes previously that we had right there, i mean there's like like gunshots being fired and like people falling down supposedly shot and then like oh they're not shot and <laughs> over's recordings playing in the background you're and spoiling a little too am much, i spo- but, yeah. i might be spoiling well, a bit too it's much, a lot like but... the other gaslight uh, kind of mm-hmm. horror movies um what's the one with uh oliver reed paranoiac or nightmare those two kind of blend together they're very similar but it's also like those movies where it's you know i think it's paranoiac with the uh the, the tape and the piano and the everything organ. it's a lot like that i think yeah. sangster probably wrote that one too it, it's kind of a rehash made in the 70s um but it's it, it's more it's, it looks higher budget like i said it's it's shot wonderfully, and the acting's really top-notch, and the ending is a really good shot, too, but I just don't think it's worth getting there. And and Cushing, it's one of his finest performances. There's lots mm-hmm. of cool stuff going on with him. He's just not in it enough. And either is Joan Collins, and they're just not in it enough to, you know... And that's the best part of the movie, is you want to focus on them. Right. Jo- Joan Collins does have a really good scene. Her introduction with the whole rabbit hunting, I thought, was really well done. Um, I, I don't know. I guess... I, I, I'm watching this movie, and it's not bad. It's just... Blah. Blah. I mean, you've, you've seen this movie, and... And, and, and like, um, I, I don't know if it'll be something like Next of Kin, uh, the one that Severn put out, where, like, you watch it the first time, you're like, oh, it's pretty good. But then when you rethink about it, you're like, oh, they gave you everything right there at one point in the movie, and you didn't you didn't notice it until after you re... And you're like, oh, that makes it a lot better. It makes it terrifying. This, mm-hmm. I don't think, would have it, because it's never really scary. No, it's it's never really scary. Suspenseful, it, yes. I wouldn't even say suspenseful. Like it, it's shaky. It's it, it's like I said, everything is so delicately set up that you know you don't like. It's not like a, a an observation that you put away for later. But when it comes to like, it comes into light. Like, oh, that's what it was all along. It's like, yeah, I kind of saw where this is going, and there, every small detail that could have been in the background. You just kind of like brought into the foreground like way too much. It's just a, yeah, you don't really see. You can't. There's no way you're gonna be like this and this and this was gonna happen because right. it's so ridiculous that you're like oh. But you got an idea that there's gonna be twists and turns and so you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Some people are saying they're not what they say they are, but it's okay. Um, I guess we're gonna hop into the reading of their books next week. Remember, is straight on till the morning, which I put mm-hmm. in and I was excited to watch, but then I realized it was this one, and I was like no, because the music scores were better. Um, so I'm going to read, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10, right down the middle, just because it's so well made and acted, mm-hmm. but I don't really care for the movie. Um, and this is John Stanley's Creature Features out of 5 stars. I bet these people wonder why these books are so beat up, it's because I had them since they came out, probably besides <laughs> Tape on Tour. 
But uh, Fear in the Night, um, two out of five stars, 1973. Hammer's psychological thrill with Judy Geeson as a bride being terrorized at a deserted school for boys. Everyone thinks she's recovering from a breakdown and is still nuts, but we know better, right? Fans, trick ending by writers Jimmy Sangster and Michael Seiston is telegraphed to this shocker as a few surprises. Sangster also produced, directed Joan Collins, Ralph Bates, Peter Cushing, HBO Republic for Magnum as Dynasty of Fear. Okay. Fear in the Night by Terror on Tape by some guy. James O'Neill. James O'Neill, a complete guide over the yada yada. Okay, Fear and the Night, 1972 in my book. PG, 94 minutes. Sinks, uh, three out of four? Yep. Uh, three out of four stars. Sinkster manages to write a few new twists in his standard driver crazy plot with Geeson as a young bride terrorized at a closed-down boys' school by a maniac with an artificial arm. Atmospheric and well-performed. This is also available as Honeymoon of Fear and Dynasty of Fear. This latter moniker obviously inspired by co-star Collins' later TV success. Dynasty. She's got to be in Dynasty. I'm not familiar with television, but that's a classic television show. Um, I'd give it a two and a half out of five because I do like Cushing in it. In all two and a half minutes that he's in it, so each <laughs> he's in a lot more than that. <laughs> but, but honestly, yeah, you, Hammer is lucky to have people like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Michael Ripper and Oliver Reed and some mm-hmm. of their pictures. To be honest, um, most of the stuff is it's, it's like I like a lot of the weird shit. Like I love half of it. Mm-hmm. There's never been a, a complete turkey for me. Nothing's ever made it past two out of five stars in Hammer's in lineup for me. I've been so, kind of low on some of them, but I've never, I've never had one what was unbearable. You know, it's it's really weird. It's like I think so far I've really seemed to like a lot of the science fiction stuff, a lot of that fifties and sixties stuff we were watching. The gothic horror, I seen a lot of the gothic horror, and when I think of Hammer, I think of that gothic horror. So I just kind of like that because that's just what I expect it to be. But this stuff, it's like I, I, I don't know. I think the Italians do it better. I'm just going to say it. The Italians do it better. The Italians do everything better. A young bride packing for her honeymoon. What happens to her now may be all in the mind. A figment of her imagination. Or she may be in very real danger. Either way, there will be madness. And murder. And fear in the night. Beamish tells me you haven't been very well lately. You had a nervous breakdown. That was about six months ago. These things take a long time to sort out. He was waiting for me, Bob, like he was before. Fetch the doctor. No, God, please. Bob, I was attacked. I was. You don't believe me, do you? I believe you think you were attacked. honeymoon at a quiet school in the country. A school without pupils, just deserted halls, empty rooms, and fear in the night. Sorry if I frightened you. Forgive me for being personal, but you do seem terribly young. Almost like a child bride. I'm 22. Oh, well, I'm sure that Robert needs you as much as we need Robert. 
What you doing out of bed? No. I couldn't sleep. It must be the champagne. I keep thinking I can see someone. Oh, where? Over there, by the window. I can't see a thing. Hello. You could get your head blown off creeping around like that. Good evening, Robert. I've been waiting here to welcome you. I hope that gun isn't loaded. If it went off, it would waken the boys. Why not come down into the hall? You can talk things over quietly. But I am in the hall. guys let's get into these questions the first question is by nick mool i know you just like miniseries but will you watch the stand remake when it's out later this year i think i'm gonna have to watch the stand remake because i read the book and i really liked the old miniseries as a kid it was a moment my mom loved stephen king so i remember we used to go up to the video store whenever that came out we rent each tape and watch it together um you know my mom was uh like the sweetest person. She was a saint. You know when people say that? My mom was a saint. My mom actually was a saint. You can ask any of my friends or family. My mom was a saint. Especially dealing with me and my brother. She was a saint. Uh, what kind of movie theaters do you prefer? Small and artsy or you're the multiplex? A little bit of both. We, I live in Toledo. There's no such thing as small and artsy movie theaters in my area. And I, I, I know this is bad to say. I should drive, you know, the Monroe and stuff. And But um, so I, I'm a little bit guilty of not supporting things like that. more I should because I don't want to drive. Um, have you ever seen a film so scary that you hesitate, hesitate to recommend it to others? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe to certain people I would, but I did, um, hesitate to recommend the Nightingale because I was talking to my, uh, um, my cousin's wife and they have two kids. One was just born and I was like, Oh, the Nightingale's fantastic. You should watch it. And then I remembered my cousin earlier saying, I can't watch anything that happens to babies or pregnant women anymore because after what happened, and then I was like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Don't watch it. Do not watch the Nightingale because there's some real horrific moments that happen to a child in that movie. And I was just like, no, 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 no don't watch it. Don't watch it. Uh, a baby. And, I, and, I, and so that is one right there. I would be hesitant to recommend like something that's a great movie, like the Nightingale to certain people. Not because they, uh, you know, they would appreciate that's a good movie. I don't think they could watch it. I don't think they could watch that. Um, Tempo Tapas, when you're finished with the Hammer Horror movies, will you make a short list of your favorites? Of course. Uh, we're going to do that um, at the end. We'll do, like, probably a top. Uh, Jeremy wants to run down the list and put them in order, but I don't even know if I'll remember all the, you know, thrillers and everything like that. So we have some answers here. Uh, Christopher Dallier, uh, look him up at Chris B Movies on YouTube. He's a cool guy. So if you're interested in more reviews, check him out on YouTube, uh, Chris B Movies. So my answer to the question of the week is the Grady sister. Oh, last week I asked basically your favorite cinematic uh, siblings, you know, real or fictional. And he said my answer is the Grady sisters from The Shining. Creepy as hell. Come and play. Red rum, red rum. And Travis Wright, favorite cinematic siblings, either Luke and Leia from Star Wars or the brother and sister in Teen Witch. And then he says, Luke and Leia didn't know they were siblings for a while, though, and that may, and they make out, so never mind. Terrible choice. <laughs> Viper Rose 1978, love the Return of the Dead review. I'm going to read this whole thing because I, I like some of the lines in it. Notable lines, but can you trust that bastard? Uh, Christ, Ethel, I don't know. Yeah. 
I think you uh, have probably seen this movie as much as I have, but I honestly can say top three zombie movies. I see what you mean about the question in the movie. Not sure how you can say brains with no lips, but it's so comical you overlook all the flaws. It's like the perfect horror comic. Best cinematic siblings, Barbara and Johnny from Night of the Living Dead, the Frog Brothers um, from Lost Boys, of course, and I'll throw in Regina and Samantha from Night of the Comet. Stay safe, man. Dated Leather, Jeremy Irons, Dead Ringers, Cronenberg. Uh, Nick Mua, these uh, movie family members get my vote. Justin Long plus Gina Phillips as Dar- Dar- Dari or Dari and Trish um, in Jeeper Creepers. They feel like actual bickering siblings. Actual, actual siblings don't know if that's allowed. Jake and G- Maggie Gyllenhaal as Donnie and Elizabeth Darko. Aaron Taylor J- uh, Johnson plus Elizabeth Olsen as the Maximoff twins in the X Men movies. James Prescott, not entirely sure I understand what you mean by this, but. If you're asking what sibling out of cinematic character siblings, I have to say my favorite is probably Philip Lip Gallagher. Um, Belinda McKay, Frog Brothers. Uh, Faith Bot Twin. Mine would be Tommy and Trish from Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. Uh, yep. Uh, Peter England, Al Pacino, James Kahn, John Castle, Robert Duvall as Michael, Sonny, Fredo, and Tom uh, Corleone, or Hagen for Tom. Uh, Shazine Barbarian, uh, Frog Brothers is a good one, but I think the man and women from Peter Under Stairs are my favorite. Ah, uh, yep, they're great. Everett McGillan, I can't think of the uh, actress's name. Kayla Elizabeth, Bridget and Ginger from Ginger, Snap Tri- Ginger Snaps Trilogy. Michael uh, Weimerschnitch, um, The Howards. I imagine the Three Stooges, or, you know, that would be, um, yeah, Mo Howard, Curly Howard, and um, Shemp Howard, but in the show, The Three Stooges, Larry, uh, you know, Curly. Um, Moe or Larry um, Shemp, Moe, however you want to put it. Uh, Michael, there we go. Steve Rudinsky, uh, Alice and Rick in Nightmare 4. I love the soundtrack in Nightmare 4. Give you anything, anything, anything. That's probably what made that one one of my favorites was the soundtrack. Amy Fox Goodwin, real. Coen Brothers cinematic, The Blood and Sister in Blue Ruins. Such a real relationship. Excellent movie. Matthew Scott, Jeremy Irons, and the Jeremy Irons. Neil Machindo, uh, how do you say, Meshindo, Ray and Dennis, Randy and Dennis Quaid, of course. Sarah Cody, This Is You. David Gibson, Chop Top and Leatherface. Uh, Jake Fairbairn, Connor and Murphy, The Boondock Saints. Jason Lindbergh, Grady Sisters. Brian Sattler, Real Life, Wilson Brothers, Fake Step Brothers. Carlos Lopez Jr., They're Not My Fave, But I Felt Those Chicks in Raw Were Quite Odd and de- Deranged. They were. Uh, Robert Barry Franco's Cameron Vale and Daryl Revick from 1981 Scanners. Brothers should be close, don't you think? Uh, love Michael Ironside. Hayden uh, Hall, Girly and Sunny from the movie Girly. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen Girly. I'm pretty sure I've seen that one though. It's really weird. That's a is it a Freddie Francis one? I think it's one of his latter ones. Or Terrence Fisher, one of those old classic British guys. Michael Anderson, Dwayne and Belial from Basket Case. Honorable mention of Three Ninjas. Love Dwayne and Belial. Uh, Thomas Filio, Chris and Martin, uh, Udernowski. I'm not going to be able to say that last name. Real Twin Brothers from 1972 horror film The Other with uh, Uda Hagen and Denia Moeller, Deanna Moeller. Uh, Ricky Bachowski, Patrick Swayze, and Sam Elliott. You know what, Ricky? I don't know how to say your last name. I don't think I've ever had to say it. Is it Pacewitz? Um, they're not brothers, Ricky. Chris Brewer, the Gecko Brothers. Shane Glass, the two brothers from Basket Case. Tom Berner, the Craze, played by real-life brothers Gary and Martin Kemp. Ignacio, uh, um, geez, Janas- oh, geez, I'm going to have trouble with that name for some reason. I've said it before, but for some reason I'm having a brain fart. Um, Hernandez, Gay Ginelli, Pet Cemetery, 1989, or Zelda and Rachel from the same movie. John Soloway, number one again. Drayton did it again. The Sawyers are number one. Uh, Bobby Jose uh, 
Bobby Jose, uh, Monique Von Voren, and Udai Kier, and Flesh for Frankenstein, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Danny DeVito, and Twins, Jason Reinhardt, Blues Brothers, Lisa Marie Cart, Ginger Snaps, Keith Boyd Jr., Jake and Meg Gyllenhaal, and Donnie Darko, Mike Merriman, Frog Brothers, flipping the page here, uh, Anthony Padella, the cast of Flowers in the Attic, Samuel Glass Jr., Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Gecko Brothers, Corey Haim and Jason Patrick from The Lost Boys, Sean Morarty, Next of Kin, I believe that's the uh, gif you put on there, um, um, Keith Christian, Marty and Jane from Silver Bullet, good one, uh, Glenn G. Worthington, The Parents from People Under the Stairs, Skip Barber, Olivia uh, D. Holivan, Hol- I'm trouble, and Jane Fontaine, uh, Virginia Lay. See, I'm not familiar with that actress. I know it's a classic actress, but that's just my fault, my ignorance. Uh, Virginia Lay, Brundock Saints, or Lee, is it? Sorry. Peter England, Sam and Michael, and Edgar and Allen in The Lost Boys. Bumpus Hounds, Best Cinematic Siblings, Leon and Ursula and the Canadian Gem Pin. Such a complicated and tender relationship. Love it. <laughs> and I'm going to ask, I'm just going to read some information. Somebody left the comment. It's not a question or answer. It's just some info. Uh, Tim Hayes. And I did know about this actor, but um, I didn't go into it when I talked about The Bride. So I'm going to mention this now. Uh, the guy who played the little guy in The Bride. So this is about him. Sad thing about David Rapport, who played Ronaldo in The Bride. He committed suicide in 1990. He seemed to have such a successful acting career. Although his TV show, The Wizard, got canceled after 19 episodes, he was still getting acting roles. He was in Time Bandits, but I think any sequel to that film got scrapped because he died. He had a guest role on Star Trek The Next Generation in 1990 and started filming some of the scenes, but died before he could finish filming the episode, so he got recast. That's pretty sad. So, um, the question of the week, uh, it's going to pertain to next week's prize. Since we're at 150, I think it's time to give a prize. And uh, I want to know your favorite Dustin Mills movie. So, yeah. Or if you haven't seen the Dustin Mills movie, your favorite low-budget indie horror movie. Um... More modern, you know, let's keep it like last 20 years or so. So, you know, if it's pieces of talent. But I want to hear your favorite Dustin Mills movie, first of all. So, uh, yeah, I guess we're going to hop into the update. All right, let's hop into this. First is Thoroughbreds. Um, This is on my Patreon list for this month. I didn't get to it because I just got this movie yesterday. But, uh, yeah, I got it cheap on Hamilton Books. I hope it's awesome. Jeremy picked this, so it's going to be a little late getting that one to you. But that's Thoroughbreds. Then we have Pie Wacket, um, Hamilton Books again, cheap, five bucks. Hear good things about it. I didn't get to watch it for the year it came out. Then we have Accident Man, again, a cheapie. Uh, Scott Atkins, can't pass those up. Really thought it was enjoyable. Ray Park, uh, Michael Ja White, um, Ray Stevenson. Good stuff, fun. Good action, of course. Oops, I got a couple 4Ks. I guess I'll save those till after the Blu-rays. Then we have Elizabeth Harvest, again, cheap. Uh, it was Hamilton Books. Ooh, already have that one. Don't want to double show. Then we have Going Under. It was a Blue Underground. Got a good price on it. Um, yeah, not seen this. It's one of the only Blue Underground Blu-rays I didn't have. I like Blue Underground, so. And then we have a couple 4Ks. We have Hamilton Books, Cheapy, Quick and the Dead. Just speaking of Sam Raimi, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite um, Sam Raimi movies. And great cast. Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobin Bell, Keith David, Lance Henderson, Robert Blossoms, Pat Hingle. That's off the top. McGarry Sinise. That's off the top of my head. How good is that? Uh, great movie. Great movie. Um, really fun. And then we have, of course, John Carpenter's Christine. A good price on this. 
This is one of my favorite Carpenters. I think it's his most underrated movie. Um, love it. This is probably also my favorite King adaptation. I adore this movie. Um, yeah, good stuff. Gonna, can't wait to watch this on 4K. Um, then we have a couple DVDs. Uh, Justine Desaad from um, Blue Underground. Oh, there's some butts on the back. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, not seen this. And then we have Eugenie Desaad. Uh, another DVD here. Probably some more butts on the back. No, there's nothing on the back of that one. But yeah, not seen these. These are both Blue Underground, both Just Franco. I know there's a box set uh, that also includes Justine and Eugenie, but I already have those. Um, and the last, but certainly not least, is Maggot's new movie, Opening the Mind. This is the deluxe edition. Man, this looks wild. Films that kill. If you email Maggot and you want to buy one, um, yeah, he's selling them. The store is closed on the site, but it's still up there. I'm sure it's insane. He's, uh, this deluxe edition also came with a slip cover, some other things too. I'll, I'll show them real quick. You guys got the patience. He threw a, and then I helped disc in there, which I actually have, um, kind of a poster here. I don't want to open it up. Um, looks like some, uh, lobby card deals. And then we have some drawings. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Look. Maggot's movies are pretty interesting, man. Then we have a one signed by Eric James, who's an actor. So, yeah, cool stuff. And we're going to hop back to the video. All right, I just want to let you guys know we have a Patreon shout-out for Nick Mua. He went ahead and paid me through uh, PayPal. So that was very nice of him. And just let me know what you want me to watch for April. But um, I guess if you guys want to support the Patreon and you don't want to do a Patreon account, we can do PayPal. But just got to let me know and keep me up to date and everything like that. But uh, thank you very much, guys, for watching. As always, you guys have a good one. Hey.